Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Rogue Retro Smackdown series. I am your regular host, Scott McLeod, and as I uh, promised coming out of Survivor Series, we're trying to expand the uh, the guest co-hosts on this show. I mean, I like the guys here, Rogue Opinions, and they've contributed very well, like the likes of Carl, Liam, and Reese. But uh, I'm starting to expand now. I've got some friends from outside Rogue Opinions I'm bringing in, and uh, for this, episode, the post-Survivor Series episode, I have a, got a good friend who uh, I first met when we were both writing for uh, a website called Wrestling Blogs back in the day. <laughs> uh, Samuel Preston. Samuel, welcome to uh, to Rogue Pink. Thank you very much. Much uh, much appreciated to be here. God, memory lanes, isn't it? Memory lanes going down there. So remembering Wrestling Blogs as well. Oh, touching me right where I remember. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it was... For those who weren't really following it at the time, it was mainly about basically UK wrestling. I, my main thing was, oh, you're Scottish, so uh, you write about ICW. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty much like, right, you've got your section of the UK, and then we've got three who reside in Plymouth, so they can just talk about weekly um, local stuff. So, you know, it was really spread out, as you can imagine. So I like the imagination behind that. But, um, I think it was it was it was always kind of fun being able to branch out every now and again, and I was looking forward to seeing what we could have done. But obviously now we've had it; we've both moved on to other places, and you're doing quite well for yourself. I'm hopefully still doing well for myself. Um, see how things go, ain't it? Yeah, very much. So, like, I remember I got to also do a lot of stuff for NXT UK, and it's weird how when like you need to be following along for it for like articles or podcasts how invested yarn yet honestly, i'll be honest with you since i stopped writing about nxt uk i couldn't tell you the last time i actually watched an episode <laughs> that so yeah i just um i remember that the that was quite useful for me is that if i couldn't be bothered to watch the episode i just knew that i would get an article from you so i could just catch up onto it that way i'll be like well, Scott's explained everything I need to know for when I have to watch an episode. So that was ideal. Um, or I think, do, do you remember one time I said to you I had to catch up and I had to do like two months of episodes in like a week to try and get on top of it in time? Uh, I don't quite remember. Uh, <laughs> I remember occasionally we'd send a couple episodes and like there'd be other stuff on. So we'd like had an episode, an article from like two weeks ago that hadn't been like put out yet. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. Um, that was usually me trying to keep on top of it. Um, I'm not going to lie. One of the things I quite enjoy now at where I'm at is that I don't have to publish it. I can just write it, send it in. They tell me what I need to edit. I'll send it back again. Anything up to three, four times, and then they do the actual publishing. So I don't, I can, once it's, once it's ready, I can sort of relax and just wait for it to come out again. But you've almost had to go the opposite way where now you're, definitely in control of your stuff so you have to make sure you get it out on time isn't it yeah most of the stuff like if it's just me hosting like for this show or like various other shows i do other people like it depends who's got the time mm. and i'll use I'm, I'm happy usually to edit but uh, never usually me that uploads that i just send it off to uh, to nathan and he usually uploads it even though i've told him like if you just give me the password and I, I can upload it myself but like it's something it's better just to like to be able to just send off like there i've, I've done all the work just just upload them <laughs> You can move on then. You can move on to your next one and get yourself ready, isn't it? Very much. Yeah. Like, I know a joke was like, oh, I was going to start by I mean, that's literally, I'm pretty sure I got sent a tweet by a pal of mine who knew I was wanting to get into more like writing. 
mm-hmm. basically they'll tweet was basically from Aslan Blog like any anybody based in this in the Glasgow area willing to write about ICW, that's basically what it was. Yeah, and you just like came wading out of the dark, um, prepared and ready, saying, "Give it to me, give it to me," and it just went from there. So, um, whereas I, ju- I'm just the type that stumbles onto things, and suddenly, before I know it, I'm writing two, three articles a week, tearing my hair out trying to keep on top of. So, um, but uh, now I'm trying to branch out a little bit into film and television, but I still want to, still like to fall back on wrestling because it's like. Well, I've been watching it since 97, so I've, there's people younger than the amount of time that I've actually watched it. So um, it's always going to be a part of my makeup to some degree. So whenever someone says, oh, do you want to talk about wrestling? And we watch old episodes from 99, I'm like, hell yeah. That's exactly what I want to do. That gives me proper flashbacks, um, especially these ones. So I have to admit, this episode gave me flashbacks I did not expect at all. But I'll, we'll probably go into that as we go along. So, um, yeah, exactly. yeah. Because that really takes care of a question I was going to ask. Because the people I've got in mind to like follow along with me on this the series of like I've been watching Resident from various different periods. And basically, I was going to ask you if you'd remembered watching this at the time or if you were watching it back when you were the first time. But since you said you started watching in 87, I imagine like you've probably been probably watching quite heavily, like week to week at this time. Well, that's the ironic thing. Um, I, I, like I said, I started in 97, but that was with WCW. So. I was watching Monday Nitro um, every week to the point that I think I almost ruined uh, one of my mum's birthday meals because I was worried about not getting back in time to watch Nitro. (laughs) And I was annoying the crap out of her because of it. But um, I actually didn't start watching WWF until the first week of the year 2000. So this is what made this episode quite strange for me is that I'm watching it and it's like I'm seeing the beginning of the storylines that I first joined on to. So this is moment. So technically, it's familiar in that I'm going. Oh, I remember the build up to this. I remember seeing the clips of this, but I never actually watched the episodes themselves because at that point I was still going through Vince Russo's deterioration of WCW and making me cry. So, <laughs> um, but I'm. I that was that was what I was so excited about. I was like, right, this gives me an opportunity to see almost like the the beginning of what I got used to because when I started watching WWF it was when Chris Kresge was writing and it was just pretty much every episode was so well done you were excited to see what's going to happen next and it went through the complete heyday so in like um the next couple of months when you're discussing the next episodes in like January and uh, February I'm going to be like oh that was my starting time oh that takes me back now but yeah, that's the weird part of the nostalgia. I remember this, but I didn't actually watch it. Yeah, like I have said before in a couple of episodes that we're starting to see the evolution of what will be like the year 2000 and a peak year for the company because Russo left around about No Mercy Rebellion time earlier this year and is now fairly a part of WCW. And now the, the way it goes back to now forming the kind of the team of writers we know as the style as today in WWE where basically it was like a booking committee with Stephanie I believe at the head of it for a while and that's where you got Chris Kresge and later in 2000 you had Brian Gwartz who worked heavily mm-hmm. with The Rock and I believe Edwin Christian most notably and so you're seeing that like development so like it's a November December 9 is very much a transitional period before it goes full pelt in the year 2000 although 
I am just desperate to get to 2000 because I'll ask you this episode and the episode next week that you and I will be covering weren't uh, weren't favourites of mine so far. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can definitely feel the transitional period. You're watching it almost like a glacier gradually morph into (laughs) what will be in the year 2000. And the fact that in the year 2000, from pretty much January onwards, they're hit, they're smashing it out of the ballpark near enough on an episode by episode basis. And this is where you can feel them starting to develop what I call the Kresge style. Um, But you, it's, you can definitely see the growing pains in certain sections, which we'll probably point out as we go along. But um, I, I don't blame you being desperate to get to the 2000 section because that's when not only is it go, go and smash bang every episode, but I think there's the matches are a different style as well. But again, we'll go into that as we go along. There's um, It's definitely the feel of a transition as we were watching these two episodes, I would say. So... Yeah, the most one of the most obvious examples over the last few weeks has been, uh, like I said, remember at Rebellion, where when everybody was over in the UK doing the pay per view, that's where Russo snuck off to sign his contract for WCW, and on that show we have Stephanie getting hit with a bin and getting amnesia, which is such a Russoism the idea, and the fact that one week she suddenly was, oh yeah, I remember, and me and Tess are back together, and we're still going to get married. That was basically a piece of leftist shit. Let's fuck it. Let's just sweep under a rug. They're back together now. <laughs> oh god, that's the. That's even. I've never seen the clip originally, so I heard and read about it, and I was just like, I have no idea how they're going to do that. So I always had images of like uh, Boulder picking up a proper grey fashion trash can and basically pretty much like pelting it through across the ring and smacking Stephanie in the head and just watching her bounce back like a bowling ball or something like that so when they actually show the clip um during these two weeks i was like well my imagination was better than that that's a little anticlimactic but as you watch it you're just like really and then they see it straight away turn into oh she remembers again it's like ah so that's the soap opera feel yeah you can feel like um definitely a dynasty moment there um i'm kind of glad i wasn't I think, I'm not going to lie, I think if these were the episodes I was introduced to as a child, I don't know whether I would have gotten as addicted to WWF. I think the timing I had was just perfect. And it's almost nicer to be able to watch these in retrospect, um, knowing what's coming ahead, so that I sort of have stuff to look forward to. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I get where you're coming from. Because, like, no one would ever say, what storyline got you into wrestling? Well, at one time, Bulldog threw a bin, and it hit Stephanie in the head, and you couldn't remember anything. Like, I mean, if there is somebody out there, please let us know. I'd, I'd be interested to get to know what the hell it was about that that appealed to you, but it's still very unlikely. But talking about storylines, one that's probably better than the uh, the bin storyline is uh, we're coming out of Survivor Series 99. Uh, you can listen back in the archives to me and Carl reviewing that one. And we came up the biggest angle. The show, the thing that that show is most remembered for is the fact that Steve Austin was advertised right up until the show. They're always definitely going to be in this triple threat with The Rock and Triple H. He's definitely going to be there. Even though I'm pretty sure like a week and a half beforehand, they knew he, was, he wasn't going to be there because he was too injured. And they had him written out mm. like getting run over by a car out in the parking lot. Uh, a very memorable angle, I think, from this time. 
Oh, definitely. I mean, um, to to be fair, it's the ultimate example you're ever going to get of um, uh, subject to change. Uh, if they're ever going to have it that they discussed that a card is subject to change, they're going to throw up Survivor Series 99 as an example of that one. And um, there was points when I was uh, early on in this episode that I, when we were watching, I was thinking they don't seem to be mentioning Austin that much. And then literally as I wrote that down in my notes, Michael Cole mentioned Austin. I was like, ah, cool. And it's it's really, I was really impressed actually at the fact that despite not seeing him, not having him featured, um, and literally that same way for near enough a year, he was always enough in the audience's mind and always referred to just enough that he wasn't forgotten. And yet, if you try doing that nowadays, I'm not sure whether it would have been as successful. Probably not. I think the issue is, I'll uh, we'll talk about what happened on Raw in a bit, but Throughout Raw, we've got detectives going around interviewing people like the what happened to Austin is definitely the forefront of what's going on. Mm. I think they realise by the following episode that we're going to do next week, they realise just how long Austin's going to be out for. They realise they need to kind of move on and we'll come back to the Austin storyline when when he comes back because the big crux of the storyline should be Austin coming back to find out who it was that took him out. And you can't do that if Austin's not here. So basically we'll wait for Austin to come out and people will be wondering, like, people will be like, oh, yeah, I remember you got run over. Who was that? Well, Austin's going to find out. So, like, the case of, like, we're concerned about Austin, but we need to move on with storylines. It, it's, weirdly, it's kind of like when you would watch, an, a, I don't want to say a normal television show, but when you have it, you're watching a scripted television show of, like, say, I don't know, like a, a Supernatural or something like that. A sort of, like, seasonal show that ends on a massive cliffhanger. And then you have to wait three to four months to see what happens next, to see how they get out of it. And it's kind of like that with Austin in that they get ran over and they're not going to answer it for about three to four months. But during that time, you've got everything else that's going on, which really says how different WWF really is in, in that if they, if they have these ongoing storylines and these shockers that aren't going to come back to for a long time, they've got all this material that comes up instead. And it's just making sure to steal the interest when it goes back to it. It's a very distinctive and unique way of writing television because you wouldn't have it, for instance, um, as I said, Supernatural. You could have um, pretty much like X-Files was very classic, used to have cliffhangers. You wouldn't have it, for instance, oh, Mulder's been shot. And then next week you watch an episode where Mulder just doesn't appear. And then the week after he doesn't appear. And they're just not talking about the fact he got shot until about five months later. It's a unique situation to go to go through. And I reckon it'll be quite interesting to see how well they actually do it now that once you come from this time frame. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like, it's not how you would do usual television, but like I said, if the character or the person can't be there, you mm. don't want to like, hang it around if it's going to hinder the progression of other storylines. Because a big thing about it is the accused DX heavily on Raw of being involved because obviously it would benefit Triple H and like even throughout on this episode of SmackDown they keep implying that because uh, when Triple H comes by when Austin's been taken out he's there with Road Dog and x but they're all like but where was Billy Gunn and they're and like uh, I think JR King says I'm pretty sure I saw that the driver had blonde hair and like so they keep implying that Billy Gunn is uh, involved in it and yet no serious investigation that NFL like has ever done like he's interviewed with the rest of DX on Raw mm. and that's just about it because 
the thing on Raw is people basically just passing the buck on to other people. Because DX get interviewed, they pass on to Vince, call back to the uh, the Vince Austin rivalry, and mm. uh, like, what I loved it when they police are interviewing uh, Vince on Raw is one of them says, "Isn't it true that Mister Austin once hit you over the head with a bedpan?" <laughs> <laughs> oh God, that. <laughs> You just imagine, like, if an actual detective had to sit down doing this, um, interviewing everyone and hearing the stories. Like, if they turn around and start interviewing Kane and he turns around and says, well, I've been burned alive and uh, had it that I tried to bury my brother and I've also been thrown in a casket, but I don't know how to drive a car. Uh, you just be like, you can just imagine a detective just sat there looking at them like, what world have I stumbled into? Um I, I, I remember that bedpan reference and um, I'm surprised they didn't make reference to the time that Austin pretended to shoot Vince and he peed his pants in the middle of the ring. <laughs> I reckon that's what Triple H should have mentioned. But um, yeah, I, I, I sat through watching the detective stuff later on when Austin did come back. So I've obviously got that in my mind. But um, seeing the immediate reaction to it is quite interesting to watch i have to admit seeing how like um everyone's throwing accusations and then they and then i'm just waiting for when they park it for six months before they return to it again so it's like at this point you got for instance king accusing jr but you know at later on that isn't going to really work so there's a lot of stuff that's going to feel weird in retrospect so i but i'm just excited to go for it and see how different it really is to what I remember. So I'm good to go when you are. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about Raw. You had, yeah, Vince yeah, says that he was backstage and he was right there to rush to Austin's aid, which is true if you watch the variety. So he said, it couldn't have been me. But then they said, say, like, why have you accused him of maybe getting one of his associates to do it for him? So they interviewed the Stooges. Briscoe was all like praising my man, or he wouldn't do anything there. And then Patterson goes, Oh, but yeah, do you remember this one time he did this thing and that, making... So Bristol's trying to pick up Vince and make him look innocent, whereas Harrison's just putting Vince's foot further in it. Uh, his, the detectives go to interview The Rock, saying that the car apparently was registered in his name. The Rock says, yeah, that was my car, but it got stolen. And if you knew if you were doing your job, you'd know that. And uh, that's an important detail when they eventually come back to the fact that it's The Rock's car. Uh, Rock basically then just cuts a promo on on the detectives and then like you said king ran away when they got back from the ad break is accusing jr like oh, jim ross that's uh, ross with two s's and it cuts back to jr comedy like what the hell <laughs> <laughs> uh i first of all it doesn't surprise me at all i can easily imagine the rock turn on saying if you did your jobs properly you would know that because that's completely in character mm-hmm. um it doesn't surprise me at all either of King throwing JR underneath the bus uh, because that's completely in character as well. Um, I, 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 do, I do kind of enjoy it sometimes when you get this mystery possibility of nobody really knowing and it could literally be anyone and suddenly all these different characteristics come out of them you get to see king turn into more of a sniveling backstabber than he probably was in the late 90 uh, late 90s against ha and then you've got the rock being arrogant as usual but this now actually makes him look a little bit suspicious so you can reappraise how they're acting um I'm just, I, I, I just love that idea that 
this huge big angle was created, which they had to do, obviously, because Austin was actually injured. Um, a bit of, bit of a bait and switch, as, as we both know, but they came up with the best possible solution out of it. Like, make it interesting. Let's go all out and create a storyline that can actually invest everyone. And it and it will. It, you can see like so many different characters being involved, like um, the Dudley boys at one point uh, getting involved and that sort of thing. And it's like these characters that should have nothing to do with the main event scene are being given little moments to display their characters. So the benefits of this angle overall should be fantastic for the overall roster. Fingers crossed as we sit through and we watch <laughs> everything. So um, yeah. Yeah, let's see. So, before I talk about more about the storylines, I'll carry this from out from Raw and Aid Star SmackDown. I will talk about. I do like to make note of uh, any cool scenes because this is a great era for fans. Fans with scenes, it's something you need really positive, properly get a look at it. And I couldn't see many on SmackDown, but Raw, uh, the Raw before this was a banner night for sat for scenes, and I'll read uh, them out to you. You know, some of the ones I'm actually not down. Uh, ironically, during a Mankind Val Venus match, where Mankind finally beat Val Venus and put that feud that went on for far too long and uh, to rest, where there's a sign that says, uh, Ron Jeremy is my dad. <laughs> and a sign, a sign well off to the, the right of the hard cam. I could, I could just barely make out. I'm pretty sure it said Savile on it, just that's just Savile and, <laughs> and I just put next to it WTF. <laughs> Oh, uh, see, so, um, I love the signs from this time. The difference watching SmackDown, um, I have to admit, seeing all these different type of um, signs that you can really feel were made at home because they're a mixture of shoddy and inspired. So it's all these little ones. Like I think there was a Y2J one uh, which had lights attached to it to make it look flashy, and it's like um, that's almost above and beyond. Uh, what you'd expect. Um, I I have to admit, I used to love the signs. I, I loved it so much. I thought it really made characters out of the audience and also brought attention to different uh, wrestlers who may not have gotten notice otherwise. I think um, you could have, for instance, you keep on, like, I think Mr. Socko, in fact, funny enough, years uh, when, he, when it first debuted, nobody thought it was going to be a big thing. But it was because everyone had signs of Mr. Socko the following week that everyone realized, oh, actually, we've got something with this. And that's the thing. You, it, during this time, it was a really great way of measuring what fans actually wanted. It was the, it was almost like the original version of Twitter um, in terms of seeing what's trending, what's reacting, what line gets something. So, you know, like Braun Strowman had it that he said, these, uh, you get these hands and it would have been trending on Twitter because everyone would be discussing it. Whereas if he'd been around at this time, you would have just had it, everyone coming in with big signs cut in the shape of hands saying you get these or something like that. I, um, it was one of the, bo- it was one of the bonuses I had to admit of watching these episodes was being able to see these quite original signs and just getting a real nostalgic feel to how, for how it used to be, the imagination that all of these children are allowed to bring. And I, I admit, I quite miss that. I don't know about you. Yeah, definitely. Like, it's really missing. Like, you still get good scenes nowadays, but like the creativity with some of these scenes, like, more of an you get someone saying, oh, they hit a wrestler that's basically just like he's gay or something like that. But then you get some creative ones like these ones. And you got one, I'd rather be in China. 
and <laughs> when it says Vince Russo is overrated. <laughs> oh, that um, I think those ones might have had um, foreshadowing into the future, uh, letting us know what was going to be coming soon. So um, that those are probably those those sound like ones that would um, the Vince Russo one, for instance. I think would definitely have been from someone who was reading the message boards at the time, or to be fair, was just watching WCW and realised that actually he's pretty terrible. Um, without having a gag on his face to, in order to get the worst ideas out, because I mean, I I was lucky. I'm I'm in terms of missing the hot shot style he had for WWF, but then again, that had some of the best characters um, and wrestlers at the time to distract from it. Whereas instead, I got to watch Vince Russo in WCW when he was in complete control and nobody looked like they could really be bothered anymore. So there was, even at 10 years old, I think I remember at one point turning around to my mum and saying, this is really bad. (laughs) A 10-year-old saying, this is really bad. And that was unprecedented for me. So... I'm kind of I'm kind of going with Mr. Vince Russo section um, because I do think he is massively overrated. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, I think mean, like you already see the signs of it. Like I'm trying to repeat things that he did that worked well in the WWF when he went to WCW because I believe the November pay per view for WCW Mayhem '99 there was like a tournament to crown a, a new world champion because they'd done some weird angle where it got vacated after Halloween Havoc and. Mm. It's like immediately it's like oh yeah the thing everybody gives them credit for even those who hate them is like him being behind the deadly game tournament so like mm. before a world title tournament and even though that tournament i believe it came down to bret hart versus uh chris benoit two of the mm. best they had at the time they still couldn't do it without some shoddy overbooked vince russo finish mm. uh, yeah um i I remember the tournament to some degrees in that, um, if I remember correctly, that was around about the time when the um, our TV wasn't working for a week or two, so I missed a couple of weeks. But you had it, for instance, that Medusa faced um, was one of the 32 participants, was in one match, she lost, and then she got to wrestle a different wrestler on in the next stage of the tournament. And it's like she just randomly decided she would replace someone. And it was that sort of like moment where it's just like, just throw someone out that you think, yeah, you don't, you just seem to be filling numbers. The, I get the overall idea of the tournament was definitely to bring someone new. And that was something that Russo always wanted to do. I have to give him credit for that one is that it always seemed like he wanted to bring new people to the forefront. So like, for instance, the writing he does for test when he was around, giving him this big angle um, with Stephanie was definitely an opportunity for him to try and push someone new fair play for that one. He left before he was even got to do the finish Um, would have been interested to see how well reality would have changed if he stayed around for that one. But, too often, by trying to force these new wrestlers in, he was creating more messes. So he was like, right, I want to push Buff Bagwell, so I'm going to make him have a major storyline around him. And then you just end up having it that Buff Bagwell lies down in the middle of the ring and just like motions to be hit because he's breaking kayfabe. And then you've got it like the day after um, the lead-up to Spring Stampede 2000, uh, when he's working with Eric Bischoff, have all of the titles vacated because they're starting anew. And it's just like 
all these opportunities to try and push new people fair play respect to you russo you want to do that but you're creating more messes and in in because of it you're leaving all these people behind who had storylines set up or who were prepared and you sort of like just putting the toy down picking up another toy having a couple of minutes with that and then all you end up doing is damaging all the other toys around them um which is one of the things that i dislike the most and that's one of the things that is making me look so forward to seeing some of the later work that Kresge does um if i if i get to come back i'm obviously not going to count my uh eggs before the hatch but um it's you get to see that people aren't necessarily just shoved aside they always have a reason whereas russo in wcw you can tell what he was going to do from hour one to hour two let alone from week one to week two month one to month two um I'm assuming you've you know about the storyboards that Kresge used to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Which, I think because yeah, I think that's a standard thing in television where he came from. But mm. it was kind of looked at almost with like cyber glances, like what you, the hell are you doing? And he would mm. bring that kind of style to the the writers' room. It you could definitely tell it's inspired from television, like you said, because I remember reading a book with Chris Carter for the X Files, who had it that when they were planning a season finale, him and three other writers would be stood in front of a board and be putting these little um, post-it notes along, moving it around to create a whole episode. Um, and it seemed it's such a simplistic idea, but that heyday was when everything connected everything had a reason the flow of things was fantastic and it's definitely i it will always be in my heyday um this 2000 period that we're coming up to that i always felt that things flowed really fantastically like everything built upon each other like you could have three storylines connecting in a way that made sense which doesn't necessarily happen either here or nowadays but seeing that story that um storytelling perspective brought into the wrestling world i think really inspires it whereas russo would probably have it that he just has 17 different boards and sees which one he's going to pick up today it goes right i'll push that one and then it just so happens that jeff jarrett's name is on six of them so (laughs) it's um it's I'm glad I missed the messy side uh, for WWF and I got to see it with the good version to some degrees. I'm gutted that I spent more time during this period watching Vince Russo with WCW um, and missing out on some of the stronger elements of WWF at this time. Uh, I think some, some people argue not one of the stronger elements of uh, the next couple of months is the fact that Big Show was announced as, to be the... Um, mystery third participant in the, uh, the Survivor Series main event, replacing Austin, and actually winning the WF title from Triple H uh, with the help of Vince McMahon, who was the special guest referee. And as we said on the Survivor Series review, I don't think people were cheering because they were happy Big Show won. They were cheering because they were happy that uh, Triple H lost, because mm. Triple H was the big heel at the time. And the main storyline right now is really Triple H versus Vince McMahon. And so Raw this week opened with obviously Triple H saying that a crime had been committed, the fact not Austin being run down, but the fact that he had the WF title stolen because of a uh, of Vince McMahon, and then mm. Vince turned. Uh, obviously, he accuses them of being involved 
in the Austin ang- angle and being behind, running him over and he flies. Basically, uh, Vincent flies at a DX mighty jail, they'd all get raped because he, he says that Road Dog would definitely know the meaning of the word uh, doggy style <laughs> and that if I was uh, someone with a nickname Mr. Ass, I'd definitely be worried about going to jail. Oh, this is where you could definitely tell the attitude here was still a part of it because um hundred percent don't think you get away with that nowadays. Um Um did I'm gonna I, I wanna discuss the choice of Big Show, I think was quite quite an interesting decision. Um I think at the time I would have been surprised. Um because my one of the one of the issues I have um with that is that even though Big Show is champion, the fact that the main storyline is instantly about Vince and Triple H, which makes sense because it's a big storyline, but it instantly backseats um, Big Show. And also it doesn't help that the number one contender is, as you're, you're probably going to mention later on who the number one contender is, but isn't really of the same caliber as Triple H. So it kind of, it's, it becomes almost a um, a point of the Big Show being the surprise entrant, winning it, but then was he actually in the position that he should have been champion? Because he's it's like a mid-carder being suddenly thrown in. It's it's basically it, it kind of reminded me a little bit if like um, when Hardcore Holly came back from having his neck broken and beat Brock Lesnar straight away. Yeah, and became W champion. It's like a completely unexpected moment of this mid-carder to some degree. Because he was a mid-carder at that point, Big Show. He was a mid-carder in a mid-card feud, suddenly being thrust into the main event scene out of nowhere, replacing the biggest star in the company. There's no question. Austin was the biggest star in the company. Um, and taken and instantly being less interesting than the owner of the company and a big nose degenerate in Triple H <laughs> battling just because things got personal. I don't know whether you noticed that things got personal because Triple H mentions it a couple of times just to round the message in a little bit. Um, but I, d- I, d- I don't know. I'm curious about the choice that they went for Big Show. Um, I'm a little bit surprised. Um, what about you? I mean, did you we, did that make sense to you? Were you surprised that Big Show got that opportunity? What was your thoughts? Uh, I don't like that you mentioned a bit getting personal. I did pick up on it once or twice. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's it should be in the subtitle of the next Matt Doom game. Don't you? It's personal. <laughs> Absolutely. You just imagine like a really bad um, voiceover uh, basically being like, Smackdown, this time. It's personal. And then just like a picture of Triple H's snoz on top of the uh, SmackDown game. That uh, I think I would buy that just because if it's got Triple H's snoz on there, it's probably going to be um, the size of a board game. So I, it could be a big, big tape. So that'd be amazing. Um, to to be fair, the how the show opens up with Triple H, like he is, he, he is definitely the biggest heel in the company. But what we're watching down these two weeks is the point where he goes from being technically the top heel, as in like there's nobody else as big a heel to him, to the actual main heel in that he deserves that spot. So I think we're sort of seeing that transition where from roundabout Survivor Series, he it felt like he was the top heel because there was no one else really in that position. Probably would have been The Undertaker if he hadn't been injured and taken time off. Um 
he was it was it was almost like a placeholder and it's these couple of weeks that's leading into that we watched that he really cements his position as the the biggest heel on the roster so the tra- um the transitional period here is basically replacing austin and creating a fantastic heel that everyone else can bounce off of and i actually feel like the big show might be one of the biggest ones who f- uh, suffers from that because being the surprise choice to hold the spot until triple h gets to the right position i think damages them a little bit in some of the uh, moments we see i do you feel that at all or do you think he does well yeah because i'm pretty sure uh, the uh, the dirt, the thing where the Meltzer would report they're in this team that originally Triple H I think was meant to retain just like sneak out of managed to just escape with the title uh, at Survivor Series but eventually would drop it I think either Austin or The Rock by like the start of next year uh, so you can clearly tell when you see the next couple weeks a big show that he is def- he was definitely he wanted a feel good moment at the end after Austin got taken out so they put the belt on big show after he basically went through the entire Survivor Series team earlier in the night, and mm. he him having the title and the fact that he gets like one segment per show and that's a couple of weeks, and then it's just basically gone. There's no mention of him, and when he's out, they're just talking about what happened with DX and Triple H and and Vince and the the hardcore Holly comparison is, is very apt because uh, the thing with him and the person he's feuding with, yeah, they had a, they were already in the middle of a feud, and one of them is sent through the champion, so yeah, find made that part of it. Like, and it was very much similar with uh, Argyle. He came back, he had an issue with the guy who happened to be the champion, and they just put him in a stop cap feud for the belt. But then again, it just serves to like make the title not feel as in, as important. Because mm. as it seems on SmackDown, clearly Triple H went up to Chris Cressy at one point and went, DX should be in multiple segments. And if he put that on screen, people should be asking, where's the Generation X? <laughs> That, you beat me to that quote. I was going to go berserk <laughs> like that. Um, it's it's a hundred percent true. Um, it's just like Big Show basically gets given a ten minute scene at most, and you can almost feel like Triple H's nose is poking around the camera, saying like, "When's DX going to be in the scene?" And then you spend because both of these episodes, DX are very heavy in it. It's just just like mm-hmm. they're. Is, it is literally, it, it, there were some positives to it, which I'll mention at some point, but um, it was very DX heavy um, to the point that it, I think if they'd gone any heavier, they would have they would have overpushed and they would have gotten to the point that it would just have been go away heat because already I think DX would get to a point they would get a bit of go away heat because they would get a little bit boring and same old, same old, but they were lucky in that they almost just got it right to the point that they were unbearable and then Triple H has it that he becomes the big heel. So it's it, it's triple, very much DX heavy. Big Show does get punished for it. Um, several missed opportunities, really. Um, would it be nice to see maybe if they wanted a feel-good story... Uh, one that could have worked quite well. I mean, imagine if, like, instead in the main event at Survivor Series, it had been um, Mankind come in instead of Big Show, who has already been in the triple threat before for the title at SummerSlam. He faced um, 
Triple H in Austin and it was a big match and this time you would face Triple H in The Rock and it would be a understandable um, inclusion of someone who is worthy of the main event, who is a former champion and I think could actually um, have dealt with not appearing in many scenes because one thing that Foley was good at is that when he appeared he he used every moment to as much as possible. There was a, There was very little wasted time with him Whereas Big Show was given very generic moments and run-of-the-mill title matches, I would have been interested to see that. Um, I don't, I don't know about you. What, what do you think? It would have been interesting, Carter. I think I'm getting is uh, for the for these these next last couple of months, Mick Foley's going to resign himself to be more of a tag wrestler because, <laughs> much like Austin, he he's got a lot of injuries from the style he's wrestled over the last few years and. So he's trying to work some more in ties, well, like first with The Rock and now Al Snow. Mm. Yeah, maybe take some of the pressure off of him and he doesn't need to do as many bumps. And I think if Mankind would have won, I think he would have still felt, yeah, kind of like an afterthought as champion. And knowing them, they would have probably said, oh yeah, Armageddon, they were going to have Mankind versus uh, Al Snow for the title. And it would have just felt just as much an afterthought as Big Show's feud for Arm- Armageddon. Uh, I think, like you said, they didn't have many options. They wanted Big Show as a main eventer, and yet we still made so many mistakes, even though he'd only joined in February of the same year. And, like, you don't want him to go against Triple H yet. You don't want to have him just beat The Rock. And basically, so they're basically out of options. Like, oh, well, he's already working with this person. Let's just have this for Big Show. And uh, they just exposed even more just how much, uh, how unplanned Big Show's first title reign really was. Yeah, you, it definitely has the elements of... You could almost imagine that the matches he features in that we see were already penciled in for these weeks. They just hadn't planned on him being champion at the time, so it gives a new context to it. But you could... I would say this week at least, you could remove the championship from Big Show and there'll be no difference at all. And to some degrees, if you had given the champ- if you had the championship still with Triple H, again there would be no difference, and I'm, that for me is a worrying sign. So, yeah, let's uh, let's probably dive into SmackDown. Like the op- we have a kind of cold open almost, where the Stooges are being beaten up backstage by uh, by DX, and uh, also they're sending a message to uh, to Vince about making this personal. There's that word again, mm. and it's weird that this is how the show opens because. You go from them get two old men getting beaten up, and right into the like big like <laughs> intro. You don't really get that much pyro, and then it cuts to the back to the parking lot where the uh, Vince, Stephanie, Shane, and Test all get out the limo and rush to the aid of the uh, the Stooges. And what's mm. weird, Stephanie and Test are running faster than Vince, and this is kind of trotting along as if like he cares about Parson Briscoe, but he's not in that much Irish. Whereas Test and Stephanie are more concerned about the Stooges than Vincent's. <laughs> Test is obviously really trying to improve, uh, improve, um, impress for his uh, future father-in-law. If I run really fast and get there first, um, Daddy McMahon may think I'm really good. And Steph is like, why does Andrew keep on running into things that aren't concerning him? I'm going to chase him even quicker. And Vince is like, I don't know why these two are moving so quickly, but it's making me look very bad. And then just got Shane, just like sort of dawdling along. But I, I have to admit, um, the I'm going to mention first of all the Stooges section. Um, 
I it sounds weird considering I was brought up on like um, Attitude Era and that sort of thing. I found that scene a little bit uncomfortable because you're basically watching what are probably what sixty plus year old men basically almost getting gang mugged and I, it, if they had literally just been attacked because they were used to being attacked and it's usually funny and you could li- and it's not too bad but the fact that Patterson was bleeding was uh, I had to be, I was surprised to see that and I was instantly like oh bloody hell that is not what I'm used to I thought that that made me a little bit uncomfortable when I first saw it and then I have the moment where the intro kicks in. I have like a nostalgic flashback. So I'm like, oh, Patterson's just got the crap beaten out of him. <gasps> oh, it's the entrance again. Oh, I missed this. Oh, Shane, Fence, and Test and Stephanie are here. And wow, Stephanie's almost likable. I forgot what this is like. And it was just like this roller coaster of emotions as you go through. I mean, I'm I'm probably overreacting in regards to Patterson bleeding and that sort of thing, but I have to admit I did find that little bit. Uh, I wasn't sure, not a touch too far, but it did make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, and then the same ends with with Vince as demanding a not a real sergeant slaughter to <laughs> go find the eggs, and then we cut to the ring for our first match. So already so much happening. We're only probably even less than five minutes into the show. Or we have mm. a tag team match of Too Cool taking on Edge and Christian. Too Cool are still heels at this stage. They really, really just give obnoxious heels that think they're cool. Mm. Uh, it's weird hearing Too Cool's music and not hearing a pop after it. It's just they come out to very much indifference at this point because the crowd are kind of like, these guys are just annoying. Yeah, I, I, it was almost quaint, uh, almost starting off straight away with a match. Um, because I can't remember watching many shows in the last couple of years that have actually done that. Usually, I was expecting like a 15-minute promo where everyone attacks each other. It's like, oh, no, someone's actually entering the ring to wrestle. This is new. I like this. Um, Edge and Christian coming through the crowd always always looks pretty awesome. And when you got two, oh, I say two obnoxious heels, really... Um, it's Grandmaster Sexy who's obnoxious. He's got the most obno- obnoxious laugh you've ever heard in your life to the point it makes my ears almost hurt. And then Scotty just sounds like a prat on the microphone, uh, which doesn't help. So you just got these two obnoxious figures coming in. I love seeing the little uh, cuts to Edge and Christian where they basically look like, what the hell is this? <laughs> uh, but um, I, I have to, I enjoy the fact that they quickly set up a story of what was going on with the Stooges and Vince and DX and then straight away cut to a match. It's like, here's gonna here's our opening, here's our, here's what's gonna be the overall story. And then they cut straight to a match. And it's like, oh wrestling, this is what I've come to see. Excellent. Um it, it it's amazing how simplistic something um can uh can be so exciting to some degrees because it's a very simple idea but it almost seems foreign nowadays so mm-hmm. what i don't know about you but for me it feels it at times yeah we, we tend to from putting in matches that are often kind of short in this time and feel more like the angles to start the show but this was this had some actual proper like action in this time match uh, brian christopher's laugh the only thing i can compare it to is the trucks from Thomas the Tank Engine. That's what they, just how high pitched these laugh is. <laughs> it's weird seeing them work as heels because you know they're working over 
Edge, they, they send him ball first into the into the post, uh, mm. and then it works to Christian getting the uh, the hot tag. Yeah, it's got to hot with the unprettier, what you're known as a kill switch. But the referee's distracted, which allows Brian Christian to hit the leg drop uh, to the back of the head, then roll him over. Scotty pins Christian, and uh, two cool win. So a nice, a quick, uh, but fast-paced match to uh, kick off the show. So it's a, a good start, even if it's the heel team picking up the win. I think it was, it was a good start in terms of like instantly going into the action. So the audience have a, a big shock of what the overall story is going to be and then straight into action so they don't have time to get bored or complacent. They're instantly having action thrown at them, which is a really good um, part. And you can see where that's working um, because, for instance, the, uh, I remember when Edge was getting double teams and he got a net breaker on both uh, Grandmaster and Scotty. He actually got quite a big cheer. And you can see that's where the crowd were still instantly lively and were getting into it and that sort of thing. And they were, they were doing just enough to get the crowd hyped up to hopefully continue. And some I always think that the opening match of a show is extremely important because you've got to set the standards for the rest of the show. You've got to get the crowd hyped up. And if you, if you finish and the crowd aren't into what's going to happen next, you've basically started them off deflated. So going with edge and Christian who are solid, um, uh, interesting tag team at this point, um, who with a lot of potential. And then you have two cool who, yes, they are annoying, but the, can at least get a reaction to some degrees in terms of people don't like them with it it's weird not hearing them get cheers i have to admit especially from my time but that's where you can really feel the transitional period as well because you can see both teams almost like getting moved into places to where they would go from here um but i agree i thought it was a it was a solid start um you can definitely tell uh, it says something when Michael Cole, Cole calls someone annoying, like he did with Grandmaster. And that's when I was like, damn, he must be bad. Um, yeah, um, a solid beginning, um, to be fair. And it's just kind of nice to be, to be able to see the entrance with like the big rings and the huge big uh, Tron on the side. And every time I see like um, the music videos on there, I just get a bit of nostalgia watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait. So yeah, I agree with you totally. It's a hot opening, and it's interesting to see where Grandmaster sets in. And two, it's interesting to see where Tukul and Edge Christian are here, as opposed to where they'll be. I guess we keep saying at the start of two thousand, and we cut backstage to Sergeant Slaughter telling Vince that he found DX's locker room, but they want Vince to come to them. So Vince just storms into DX's locker room and is just reading them the riot act. And it's talking about making this personal, and basically, the only best word to describe this thing is something they talk about personal. That's the theme of this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, um, it's actually, um, if, if uh, the episodes actually had titles, this one would actually just be called This Time It's Personal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and you just feel like every now and again you should have flashing up in the corner, personal, personal 
personal um there wasn't like uh by any chance like a really lovely soap coming out at the time called personal that wwe were trying to share was there because <laughs> i feel like it's almost like when the network was 9.99 9.99 do you remember that was it 9.99 or was it free because everyone it was just saying it non-stop and it was exactly the same with this personal bit um mm-hmm. okay, one thing i remember in the month before this we get to have a Mick Foley show up with his book and everyone kept going on about Mankind's book. And yet, he did, Mick Foley managed to do it in such an irritating way that you forgot this is just blatant advertising for Mick Foley's book. <laughs> uh, it's just like, as the years go on, Mick would just become um, more transparent about it. Um, when he, like, but he always, the thing is, it suited Mick Foley because he would refer to cheap pops and he admitted it and he would always do it and he'd be like so he'd be come out and he wouldn't do like the cool thing like the what does where it's like finally I'm back to whatever you'd have uh, Mick Foley going right here in the good old town of blah, 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 of whatever it is and he he was going for cheap pops but he knew it the audience knew it and it made it fun whereas this was this would feel just blatant like pretty much you might as well have it that um on top of the entrance ramp is a big giant soap that says personal on it um <laughs> it's telling you to come on down but for the weirdest part for me i have to admit is having that vince is the hero that to me was just mind-blowing to see i have to admit the only time that really made sense to me seeing vince as a as the baby face the big hero was the alliance years down the line so it, seeing vince walk into that um dr- uh, locker room and the crowd cheering for him and i'm just like what this <laughs> this is not what i expected your big hero at the moment is a 50 plus year old businessman with more billions than you've than we've probably got sense and yet he's the hero it just it's bemusing but it says how well they were writing it and also how good a heel triple h was at the time that it worked mm-hmm. yeah because i think there are very few people who play a good enough heel that make vince a believable baby face mm. and even then that's the thing when Vince is trying to get back at Triple H and stack the deck against him because he's the one making like the matches. Half the time Triple H still comes up sympathetic sometimes. Like I remember they go from SmackDown for uh, Unforgiven. Triple H had to go for like five different gimmick matches in order to get on the show. He had to get in the main mm-hmm. event of Unforgiven and then he ended up winning. Yeah, I Unforgiven. And like we look at it like any other circumstance other than it being Triple H, like this would be like Keel McMahon putting Austin or someone else in that. Like mm. anybody else other than Triple H, they look like the hero that they got through these matches and went on to win the title. But because it's Triple H, we're maybe angry about it. Yeah, it's like it, that any any other babyface, like if you had Austin, The Rock, even like Mick Foley or Big Show, Big Show in the lead up to Survivor Series, if that had been any of them doing it, you would start supporting them and cheering for them, thinking they've gone through all of it and they're still doing well. Um, Unless it was the 2000s and it was Super Cena, but we've got decades to wait before we get to that <laughs> point. Um, with Triple H, he's just such a smarmy git who gets away with things and is so smug about it that you want him to lose. Um, so it's like whenever matches whenever matches are being set up against him at this point, I'm just like, yeah, he deserves that. Yeah, he deserves that. And you can imagine like... Um, if you'd had like 
uh, during the 2000s when you had um, Mick Foley going around making matches. It was always amazing because it was just like, yeah, I'm going to screw you over and I'm going to admit it because you're a dick. <laughs> just, just do it. And he was just like, that is absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, the biggest takeaway for me from that one was definitely that Vince was somehow the hero and it was believable. <laughs> like, uh, we've definitely got more things with this to come, so we'll just move on. So we go from it being personal to the only Olympic gold medalist to ever grace a WAF ring and the most celebrated real athlete as he's insists on being called Kurt Angle, who uh, I believe defeated the Godfather this past week on Raw after being Sean Stasiak in his debut at Survivor Series. It's to continue his winning ways against Gangrel, who is accompanied by Luna, who officially became an on-screen thing with Gangrel on Raw after she gave Stephanie and Tessa a wedding present of a, a squirrel that she'd found on the road and then had stuffed. And it's interesting because Luna and Gangrel were already a couple in real life and we'd go on and get married. And it's weird that they chose this time when Gangrel's so far down the totem pole after basically the bridge broke up and then he was with the Hardys and then they tossed him aside. Now they've decided to give him Luna at his side and Angle, his whole thing right now is he, he doesn't like the fact that the fans are booing an Olympic gold medalist where he's like, you'd rather cheer him, pointing at Gangrel. He's a, he looks like a vampire. And then he looks over at Luna and I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> oh, that, oh, that made me smile and laugh when I heard that. That was, um, that was when you can tell that there's potential to Kurt Angle that even though it's early days, like like you said, he only debuted at Survivor Series, so technically he's it's what his third match, I believe. Is that right? Um, television, yeah, yeah. So it was you can already see a bit of the potential, and I think it says a lot that it could be because at the time the idea was that give every, give anyone a microphone and see how they succeed. You know, Scotty Duarte had a microphone early on; it wasn't that great, but Kurt Angle just has this natural charisma that comes across really well. And um, I, I I think putting him against Gangwell was a bit of bit of a bit of a great way of seeing what Angle could do because Gangwell is distinctive. He is unique. Luna is sometimes quite terrifying to look at uh, when she's coming at you. But they're they're also two solid talents who the fans like. And I think it helps that Gangwell's got one of the coolest entrances ever created like you could pretty much put I don't know, the blue meanie in that and he would still look relatively cool in comparison to shuffling down the ring because you're coming up through fire you're spitting blood into the air um they didn't have the red light which i was surprised by but the overall um style of it is so distinctive and a really good contrast to your clean cut um all-american golden boy the only olympic gold medalist whose name isn't mark henry in weightlifting um yeah it's uh it was a great it was a it was a great choice um to face one another and i quite like the fact as well you see uh you got teddy long as referee uh mm. a little a little bit of nostalgia um but you can already see the contrasting styles in terms of gangrel was mainly punch kick during the match and then you've got angle who's doing suplexes galore and you can see that difference in style. And I think this is the point where I, I know I'm going to keep on coming up, uh, coming out with it because it's my version of saying it's personal. But you can really see the transitional period where you're having the style develop 
um, in terms of Gangrel is a 98 to 99 Russo attitude style wrestler. Angle is 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 new blood, and he brings something new to the table. And watching him develop is going to be one of the best and most fascinating parts, I think. Mm-hmm. You see him when he comes out; he looks kind of almost nervous. Still, <laughs> he's still adapting to this kind of style. You know, the way he moves, he's, he's using his amateur wrestling background in the ring. He already looks like head and shoulders above everybody else because a lot of the guys he's going up against are mainly characters who can depend on the person can kind of go but he's just like one of the better wrestlers that they've got as much as everything else is mm-hmm. accurate and what's weird about Angle's matches is he keeps seemingly winning out of nowhere because he'll hit that a little bit the Angle Slam it would first be known as the Olympic Slam but even at this point it still doesn't have a name yet it's like oh that an inverted slam or whatever they call it it mm-hmm. just happens like oh no one like oh Angle wins because even in his first year when he was just winning the Angle Slam it's weird because when I think of a Kurt Angle finisher I think the ankle lock more than the angle slam, but also he's not using it here because we're not just we've not long seen the uh, departure of Ken Shamrock, and mm. at this point the ankle lock is thought of as a Ken Shamrock move. Yeah, um, the I like you. I'm quite used to angle putting on the ankle lock. That that's probably in several of my favourite matches ever because of how regularly angle would appear but i i get the idea yes the um not looking at submissions because it's not his style it's pure pure wrestling he wants to be doing and i think that the style they're having of him almost getting these matches out of nowhere was a was an opportunity of being able to have it that could it be that angle's lucky or could it be that he's actually good and the longer he keeps on winning because now he's free nil on television he's got a winning streak going um and is doing very well with it if he continues like that eventually the conversation is going to be that people are going to have to start um focusing on him more because you could easily have it that gangrel could have turned around after and said oh i didn't think he was he was going to be much of a challenge but angle's taking advantage of that he's using his pace and his power to be able to surprise you with this inverted slam and gets the pin before you realize what's happening. Like Gangrel's on the floor and he's all, you can almost see he's, he's, he's there, but he's so surprised that he's just been slammed that he, that he hasn't kicked out. So Mm. it's quite clever in terms of character with angle, having it that he gets these sudden victories. There's a possibility of it, um, coming up later as being either lucky or a choice of how, uh, uh, a proof of how good he actually is and then seeing how people react to him later on which i'm quite curious to see um it's it's quite i love seeing kurt angle come out in such a different style to everyone else uh he's got a lovely haircut which uh puts a smile on my face i have to admit and it's back when he had the original gold medals because um uh, did you hear the story of um when his gold medals almost got nicked yeah, I did not know. I know. I noticed he had a few more gold medals than he usually, and I usually like expect to see Wilma. So there was um, a story told in his biography about how um, he had his gold medals with him once, and he was signing autographs, and he put his bag down with the medals in them. And a couple of seconds later, we looked again, and the bag was gone. And 
a couple as he started looking around he saw someone carrying the bag and they were like oh no i was just trying to find you i, f- I found it somewhere and it was after that angle decided he was no longer going to wear his proper medals which um i think this would have been um about this time next year but seeing him actually come out with all of those medals i think really helps sell um the all-american style of him it really suits and by the time he uh goes away he does away with them and starts bringing in a smaller amount of medals they're not as vital to selling his character they're now a part of him but this is the early days where the more overblown medals he has the more it suits his character the more it, it can sell him to you and then go from there um i kind of would have loved to have seen him come out with uh, 37 different me- medals weighing him down and then using them as a weapon to see if he could win the match but you know you dream you hope you just ain't gonna have it so <laughs> <laughs> that's one, that's one, <laughs> we talked earlier about chief advertising we get more of it backstage as test is playing wrestlemania 2000 on the n64 it's oh, is it the 2000 game. edition? Is it the 2000 edition? It, uh, I wasn't sure I noticed that one. They were a bit subtle with that. So, uh, What I do love about Test playing this game is he's playing as himself against <laughs> Triple H. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but that was no subtle t- storytelling, I have to admit. Um, having it that he could have played as anyone, he played as himself, and he's he's into the game because he's getting the opportunity to beat up Triple H. Um, you know, enjoy, enjoy it while you can test. Um, or Andrew, as Stephanie was calling him, which was a nice um, blur of uh, KFAR. But it's, it's it, is it weird for you watching Steph being so like young and innocent and almost nice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. it's weird seeing her with him with 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 her. It's still weird with her being with Test. Like it's just weird to see that relationship going to. She keep yelling at them that he's not paying attention when she's opening gifts that have been sent to them because mm. they're getting married in a couple of weeks because he's just so focused on his game and the guy even shows the television uh, at one point when he's talking to her he's, he's, he's that bad at the game, he's nearly being counted out because the count's at 8 <laughs> and then they go to break, comes back he's playing a different match and then Seth gets a note that someone's left out a gift for them downstairs in a limo the test says, oh no it's too cold outside, I'll go get it mm. and what I love about this is like something of a proper TV show, something like fucking the opening of a fucking mafia movie, where the camera just follows Test from the locker room all the way down to the parking lot. He's walking down the stairs, past like a group of fans, and out and outside like there's one long tracking shot, and obviously it's a trap because DX <laughs> beat him up. They're all in the trunk of this car, and Mr. Ash just drives off, and Triple H signs off the same him. Hope that was hope that was personal enough for him. And what I love about this is they did it with the rock a few weeks ago when they, they first reformed, they put the rock in the back of your car and drove off as well. And you hit survivor series, they said, uh, yeah, we wouldn't run over somebody, that's too far. Oh yeah, so we attempted murder, that's too far. But kidnapping that's well within uh, our realms of acceptability. Yeah, it yeah, you, it does make a better sense where everyone starts suspecting Degeneration X of running someone over when they have history of um do uh doing things with a car. But um, I'm not gonna lie, I had a brief moment where watching this one, I loved as you mentioned like the mafia style of following because it was like a messier style. It was a lot more um grainy and it, su- it sort of suited the attitude era. I think in that 
if it was nowadays, um, it would be too clean and um, you'd probably just cut to them already being outside. But by following Test, and you notice they did the same at the very beginning of the show as well, when they followed the McMahons and Test going up to find the Stooges, they walked up every level. They followed them through every door. And I think by really utilising that grainier style, it, it makes it feel more urgent. Um, you get the feeling that anything can happen because... The cameramen aren't already placed there. They're having to react to it, which makes it feel more natural. And I I just love the idea of having it that when um, Billy Gunn um, has it that he's getting in the car, he looks to the camera and goes, um, ever since I was a child, I always wanted to be a degenerate and then just um, drive off with it. it I like that angle. I it was an obvious trap. We could all it was it was pretty obvious, but the execution of it I quite liked. I have to admit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, some it's it's definitely one of those that um, I'm thinking to myself. You're having it. You're trying to convince everyone you didn't run someone over by kidnapping someone and putting them in a car. Yeah, it's just, you didn't really think that through, guys, did you? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a title match coming up next is uh, the British Bulldog, the European champion is defending against the Godfather and uh, Godfather says he's not going to offer any holes to the Bulldog and when I look at Bulldog his arms are almost kind of outward, kind of moving outward of his body to the side and it's not because he's trying to like pose or anything I think it's because of he's so swole that his arms can't fully move down so they're kind of just in this weird position all the time he can't fully put his arms down. <laughs> that jacked at the moment. It's uh, the version of Stretch Armstrong where you can only pull out his side chest. Uh, it's just um, he. It was. It's it. It's weird seeing him come out in um, jeans and boots. Um, did you notice that um, when the Godfather originally came out, he was booed until the hose appeared. Yeah, he's done that before. Ah, <laughs> oh, so it's that's the point where you you're basically just admitting. They're not interested about me. They're just interested about the fact that I have ladies. Um, <laughs> one of them, I thought, looked quite uh, looked a little bit like um, one of the lesbians from 2002 with Eric Bischoff's HLA. Because <laughs> I know they use the same, uh, quite a few of the same women. So I was thinking, like, do I recognise any of them? And then I saw one of them, and I was like, why am I remem- remembering a really awful angle from 2002 <laughs> with Eric Bischoff? And Rikishi and that sort of thing. It was just, um, but I, I quite liked the European Championship. Um, I miss having it. I think it would be quite um, interesting to bring in, bring in nowadays. But this is where you can sort of see that um, you've got the old-fashioned um, style of Bulldog, um, whose power with punch and kick and looking impressive. But he gasses up quite quickly. His match was quite sure. And then you got the Godfather, who's the modern version, who's got an interesting character that fans love, but is only okay in the ring. This is like this is like in the last match we've just seen the future. Now we're seeing the past and the present. Mm-hmm. 100%. Uh, the main thing about the match isn't even about what's going on in the ring. It's about the policy offering money to the host and it wasn't a distraction. Uh, there's been a protester going around with a sign saying WF is immoral, WF is filth. I think it's maybe taking the piss out of uh, all like the PTCs coming after the WF at this time. 
and the way he's handling it in their regular mature fashion, kind of like how they just immediately discredited people complaining about Al Snow a few weeks ago when they had the mm-hmm. whole thing about Walmart removing his, his thing because people thought it was an actual Terry's doll came with and things like that. And then the posse beat up Godfather behind the rest back, slammed by the bulldog. Uh, bulldog retains, and what I love is immediately the posse go over to the hose and take their money back. <laughs> That was that was such a brilliant moment, I have to admit. It the posse coming down, giving the money and then getting involved. That was that would have been fine enough as it as it was. It would have worked. But having the posse then go back and steal the money back is that little extra bit that I was just like, alright, fair play. That actually did put a smile on my face. Um I used to love the Mean Street Posse. I'm not gonna lie. Um growing up, watching them. Uh, being included, um, Shane McMahon's uh, running buddies, um, who, weirdly enough, are not involved in the storyline with DX at all, even though they would have been very helpful at this point. Um, it's like, can you imagine, though, having to wrestle underneath those shining lights in a really hot atmosphere, wearing pullover jumpers and faux trousers and shoes and that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. I think they'd be absolutely boiling. But I, even though... They are not great wrestlers. Something about them. They're basically so terrible, I love them. And this uh, wouldn't be the only title match that uh, the, the Bulldog was involved in this week because on Raw, he randomly got a WAF title match against the Big Show. And this is one for the Alan Partridge fans out there. You know how Alan Partridge did the whole crash, bang, wall up, what a video? I can use that to kind of describe this match. But, <laughs> Elbow, choke slam, Big Show retains. That's literally <laughs> how that match went. Like, Big Show, Bulldog basically got no offense in against Big Show, and then the posse came in after the match and all got choke slams, and Bulldog just left them to get beat up. And then he comes in here and he's fighting off. I was like, Yeah, you're not quite. Big Show was unplanned to be in the WF champion. He's kind of an afterthought, but you're even more of an afterthought. I'll wait back to the midcard. I'll wait fight the Godfather with you now. <laughs> Uh, it's it's not very often that you can say the Big Show is the more mobile of the two men in the match. Um, the fact that your European champion uh, basically got absolutely demolished and then Godfather gets outsmarted by that same person. Um, it's The European Championship is already coming across as a bit of an afterthought, which is quite uh, disappointing considering, wasn't it just a couple of months ago that it was Jeff Jarrett and Dilo Brown battling go for it with the Intercontinental Championship to become the first ever person to hold both titles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and then uh, so Dilo held both belts and then Jarrett won both belts and then because Mark Henry helped them, he just gave them, he just gave the European belt to, uh, to Mark Henry. So you've had these storylines that have helped not only um, uh continue the heritage of the intercontinental championship make it look quite big but you've brought the european championship into it as well um had dealer brown win both i believe originally as the european champion so you've made the european championship look important and then in two false uh, steps one you just give it away to mark henry who at that who at that time I'm pretty sure couldn't walk to the ring correctly without possibly falling over, um, and then you have it that you give uh, you have the British Bulldog with the championship get unceremoniously squashed in the amount of time it takes to make a cup of tea. Um, 
it's going to be a while before the European Championship gains any um, noticeability at all um, uh, after this. But it's kind of... I always dislike it when I see a st- uh, title almost as an afterthought. It's bad. It's it's bad enough with Big Show feeling like an afterthought of the championship, but at least the Big Show's actually going into matches and is being put over, whereas British Bulldog is being squashed and then is walking around barely able to huff through two minutes of a wrestling match and then walking away with the championship. It's it's a disappointing element for me, but I do love seeing these old titles come back again and being able to see them on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll rush through these next couple of things, but they go by quite quickly as they're backstage. Vince is yelling at Triple H, demanding that they bring Tess back, and then Stephanie gets right up in Triple H's face, and she has to be dragged away, and Triple H threatens to beat her ass. And then we get to another part of the arena where Viscera... Shades of the future world's largest little machine character you'll have is a. Flirting. I said that. That was in my notes. I thought the same thing. Yeah. Learn with a uh, Tory before a uh, Kane just gets right up in his face and tries to beat the hell out of him. <laughs> it turns out that uh, Kane's a really good ninja. He just appears from nowhere and nobody notices him. Um, but it's a. You don't really realise the size of Fisra until you see Kane, who's taller than The Undertaker, looking relatively small and skinny in comparison. Like, it, it basically makes Kane look like um, El Gigante in comparison. Um, Fisra is... Ugh, he, he just, uh, he's a little bit skin-crawly, really. Um, I, I, I remember Tori. Um, I remember... A little side story, I remember getting Power Slam magazines in the year 2000 and they had like a little booklet once with it, which was Women of Wrestling. And Tori had a little um, uh, spread in it as well. And I don't know why. I always remember Tori for some reason, even though she was never really that big a character. So it's good to see that she's doing very well uh, in the in this um, in this scene. But yeah, I definitely had the feeling of Fisra doing his love gimmick, which um, was creepy enough at the time in the attitude area era is going to feel quite uncomfortable i imagine but um this is a good example of where um creating an interest of a match just for a quick backstage sequence that doesn't have it the backstage sequence is what books the match Mm-hmm. This this is almost smart from Fisra, which I never thought I'd say in my life, in that he's almost <laughs> trying to distract Kane and um, put him off his game. Um, but we'll come to that later on, obviously. So, yeah. Uh, long before 2004, Harker Holly got a title match and didn't have to break his neck as he goes one on one with the Big Show for the title for reasons. <laughs> It just reasons. That's all you need to know. Um, obviously, uh, Big Show needs to be able to defend it against people who are big enough to face him. So who better than a super heavyweight weighing over 400 pounds like Hardcore Holly? Um, Crash with his little uh, weight machine next to him as well. I I got a prop and nostalgic kick out of seeing those two. And... Um, Hardcore Holly, every time he walks into the ring, basically has a look as if to say he's miserable to be there uh, until he starts hitting someone and then he's happy. And that's the only time you see a smile on his face. Um, but Big Show versus Hardcore Holly, I can kind of see sense of because Hardcore's 
kind of tall he's kind he's quite strong and he could almost be a challenge but as we said before if you took the wwf title out of this match you would not miss a thing mm. the thing that just annoyed me throughout it is like the sudden rule to me because there's a wf title match the rest decided yeah nothing's gonna cause a dq because hot crash gets involved so much in this match and basically just beats them both of them up as if it's nothing and the rest mm. doing nothing about it uh, Chokeslam to Parker Holly and Crash is literally kicking and punching Big Show's back as he's pinning him. But it's not breaking up the pin. The ref keeps counting. And the Big Show's just acting like as if Crash isn't even there. Like he's just a fly that's swarting around him. And then as mm. soon as the match is over, he takes out Crash as well. And then the boss man comes out as he's the new number one contender and uh, beats up the Big Show with a nightstick. Um, one, I'm not going to lie, my notes uh, when watching this. I literally wrote, why is Crash allowed to interfere? Is it no disqualification? And I lit- I actually wanted to double check whether or not I missed that or whether it was a handicap match. But nope, just turns out uh, referee cannot be bothered to disqualify. Uh, be- maybe because he has to do more paperwork if he disqualifies it. He'd rather just let Big Show slap around both Holly Cousins, which obviously puts them over. Not at all well. Um, and then outdoors get demolished. Now, the idea of the big boss man being the number one contender. If this was 1991 and he was battling Hulk Hogan when he was in his big bubba guys, I could get it. But this has the unfortunate feel of a mid-card feud being given a main event title. It'll be kind of like Hardcore Holly defending against Jinder Mahal. Uh, if they were in the middle of a feud, you know, you really shouldn't see those two names in the main event scene battling. Big Show, you can, but you shouldn't be seeing him feud with Big Boss Man at this point in their careers. Uh, for me, that is. I just felt like Big Boss Man does not come across as a credible number one contender. He's the hardcore champion, and it feels like, again, an afterthought. And seeing him come in. He's got a nightstick and he still doesn't look that impressive. You know, he's just, it's not, it's not an impressive title defense because it's very quick. Um, Big Show is given his one scene where he batters both Holly cousins. And then you're told that the big boss man defeated the rock for the number one contendership. And if you watch this out of context, you literally just watch that one scene You'd ask whether The Rock de- debuted a week beforehand or something like that because it makes no sense in context. Uh, well, out of context. I'm curious to see if you can explain it in a way that will make any sense at all. I don't know if I can because, <laughs> like I said, Hardcore like, randomly gets the table shot because he's in boss man. I don't even think when he was in his main event run with like main event shows dealing with Akeem against the Mega Power back in the day, even then he, doesn't, he didn't come across as the biggest is the most believable main event, or mainly because he was going up against like two of the biggest stars at the time, and yet mm. now he feels even less bit like a main event, or because mainly of who he's going up against and who's kind of around him, it should probably be in his position. We'll, we'll talk more about this. Boss man's in a match later on, and we'll talk more then how he became the number one contender. returns to the arena, and was and was for a lie down backstage. And then we move on to Cage versus Viscera. Then you talk about a super heavyweight match. This is a proper super heavyweight match where Viscera gets sent to the outside 
game comes to, comes to Athram, he gets a small drop from Viscera, and then immediately he's able to get back up as soon as he feels like someone's bothering Tori. Because like, that seems to be the one thing that powers Kane up is if you mess with Tori, then Kane suddenly gets back up because he got beat down at surprise by all the DX. As soon as Egg Butley stands on Tori, he just ran right through him like, don't you dare touch her. <laughs> It's like it's it's amazing that um some some people like the Undertaker used to have it that if you touch the urn he would suddenly come back to life again and beat the crap out of you. Kane has it if you look at Tori, he suddenly is um revitalized with the life of a thousand fire demons. Um which is quite impressive. Um I'm not gonna lie, I had such a nostalgic kickback seeing Kane come out like this. The classic design, the classic entrance. I even love the fact that when the fire exploded, um, the ref fell down. Um, <laughs> is yeah. it like he's like, oh no, I didn't expect fire. Where did this come from? You know, it's 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 a great um, nostalgic moment for me. Uh, having seen, having originally seen Kane in that guy's um, I love the I, I like the I uh, like the ongoing story they've got obviously with Kane and DX and basically Tori as an overall object that everyone is going for, um, or as Fissura calls uh, his hoe um, at one point. Um, did did you notice um, when uh, Fissura called her a hoe? You had King on commentary basically saying, "Yeah, absolutely true." Gary Lawler. Yeah, I, I, it, watching Jerry Lawler. Well, listening to Jerry Lawler uh, basically is like um, a Marmite test of the Attitude Era. If you love what he says, then you want the Attitude Era back with uh, puppies galore. If you can't stand what he's saying, then you're enjoying the modern interpretation. But um, you, it's you see this sort of stuff, and you know you wouldn't get away with it nowadays. But it it has that extra edge to it. I'd be lying if I said it didn't. Fists were referring to Tori as a hoe and um, seeing Kane be so defensive actually paints Kane in a really good light, I think, considering that he's most well known for trying to burn, kill and destroy his brother. Mm-hmm. This is this is the beginning of the humanization of Kane, which oh, yeah. makes it makes it quite vital, I feel. Yeah, it's an important point for him where he's starting to become more of a human more of an actual character, uh, and Kane's my favorite wrestler, so like I wasn't ha- I was happy to see him, no matter who he's up against, even if it is Viscera. <laughs> uh, yeah, now he's got the second life after uh, Tori's been brought into it. Uh, sends Viscera back in the ring, clothesline off the top, choke slam as as high as he can possibly get. A guy Viscera size off the mat, and Kane wins as it should be. <laughs> and yeah. As we no. go backstage, uh, Triple H gives uh, a catcher's mask to test as a, a wedding present and Vince just slams the door in his face and Triple H just wanders off laughing to himself. <laughs> uh, I lo- um, I, it's, it takes a brave man uh, like Triple H to refer to someone else's nose size uh, <laughs> in such a method. Um, that is definitely a case of where Triple H is um, braver than you would have thought. Um, the, the bit where the uh, um, catch Smith did make me smile, I'm not going to lie. Um, I, was, I was impressed by the fact that Kane was able to lift Fisra more than two feet off the ground, um, but 
that might have meant that Viscero would not be able to wrestle for the next seven days. Um, so it's it's good to still see Kane being booked relatively strongly, even though he's not in a main event position, but he's still treated like a main eventer. He comes out, gets a massive reaction. Everyone's happy to see him. Um, enjoy this way you still can, buddy. Um, then you have it that um, he comes in, cleans house relatively quickly, and looks strong. And that's where you can you can tell that Kane is still quite vital in that they're thinking long term of humanizing him while also keeping him quite strong in this role as the big red machine. Um, but anytime you see Kane in this guys, it's going to put a smile on your face. I think so. Mm-hmm. Same with reference earlier on, so I'll just rush through it. JR on the phone basically saying they had nothing to do with the Austin thing. It went, Gerald Lawler. Let me tell you about Gerald Lawler. Gerald Lawler is a grade A ass. That's an ass. Two asses. <laughs> oh, see, I thought that was perfect when I didn't know about the two S's. Um, <laughs> but after what you've mentioned earlier on, that's even better now. That makes it so much perfect. And it explains why Lawler was like, what? What? Um, but that did put, that was probably my favorite moment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna admit was hearing JR roast King, considering King was being, um, a little bit annoying for the majority of the episode. Um, I mean, I, it's surprising, I know, because King's usually quite uh, modest and unnoticeable because he's such a quiet individual, but, um, uh, I love that bit. That was probably one of my favorite bits. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. And uh, talk about King, you don't think he gets much better in this next bit because uh, we have a triple threat hardcore match for the women's title. A match so important, none of the women get an entrance. Uh, we have Ivory defending against Luna and Jacqueline. And basically, it's a case of here are the three de- most decent women uh, on the roster at the time. They're basically the ones who can wrestle. I mean, I'm pretty sure Tori could go in the ring, but they didn't give her much of an opportunity to at this time. So here's the three more competent women. Let's just have them brawl. And they do, they wrestle through the crowd using malts and brooms as weapons. They fight into the women's dressing room for a minute, even though the referee says he can't go in there and get shoved in by Luna. He smashes a glass jar over someone's head. <laughs> uh, I think Jimmy Corderas, uh almost stole this match completely by his uh, comment of not being allowed to go in there. Um that it's it, those little moments really out of character i think to people that he, he come it, this gentleman referee says he can't go in there and then you've got luna basically manhandling him into there um i made the same note as you when i was uh, watching this that they had they had no entrances it's like you've got three women coming into a match and you don't have time to give any of them entrances uh it's more important for you to have jr calling king and ass um, which, granted, made me smile, but I'd like to see the wrestlers actually be shown getting into the ring. Um, and these three, to be fair, held nothing back when they were uh, basically battering each other around the um, around the arena. It was, I'm not going to lie, I'd love to have seen how these three would have done in modern wrestling. Mm-hmm. If they were in their prime, in modern wrestling, I would love to see how they had done, especially Ivory, because she is she was always quite a good wrestler, and she had a good handle of her character. She was a bit vicious and nasty at times. Um, so I would love to have seen how they would have done. 
I was nervous about this match, I'm not going to lie, because, and this could sound random, I remember watching a hardcore match once, which had Ivory against Tori, who you, funny enough, mentioned. Um, it was the first ever hardcore women's match. Have you ever seen it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was one of the first episodes we did for this review. I remember, I know the moment you're talking about. Mm. Do you, so you had it at the end of the match, Ivory used an iron on Toy's mm-hmm. back, and that image, I think I first saw that match in 2001, and that still makes me cringe. Mm-hmm. It's horrendous. So when I see it's a hardcore match with Ivory involved, <laughs> I'm see like, oh, please don't burn anyone. <laughs> please don't set an iron to anyone's face or something. So thankfully that doesn't happen. So <laughs> I was glad about that. I mean... We talked about King, the, the most notable King moment I've, I noted down is they fight into the men's bathroom and Ivory's just on the floor as two randomers are just sitting at the urinal looking back her, and she's just randomly staring at them. And yeah. goes, I wonder if Ivory saw anything she liked. <laughs> it's like, oh, King, yeah, never change. You know, you're, I'm, surpri- I'm not surprised you said that. I was... You, can you imagine though, having it that you decide you went to a WWE uh, event, you decide you're going to go toilet quickly, and next thing you know, you've got cameras and one of the wrestlers in there, um, and you're just thinking, please don't get cold, please don't get cold, sir. I think it's ironic. That I think the women's match at the time was seen as a press break match, so that's probably why these guys were in the toilet, and then the press break match came to them. Yeah, yeah. Like, you will not get away from this piss break match. We will follow you anywhere. So that's why there was such a huge queue outside the toilet. They all thought it would be a piss break match. Turns out, no, the piss break will come to you. So, um, turns out you don't need to put videos in the uh, in the toilets so that you can watch matches while it's still going on. Um, the matches will come to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for all back to the concession stand... Or I really, I think it's a Luna she may have hit with. She grabs a tree with pretzel on it, throws a pretzel on the floor, and just smacks her over the head with the tree and gets a quick pin uh, for the win. And then awkwardly just wanders back through the crowd. And I can't just stays on her for a weird amount of time because I thought that she was going to go all the way back to the ring. She's just on in the crowd, even though she's a heel. She's going, yes! <laughs> yes! Yes! You just imagine, like, um, as the as the next match starts off, you still see all. Walking down with a women's championship, and in the middle of the match, she just gets into it and starts celebrating. That would have been perfect, but um, I've it's it was a quick ending. That was the only thing. It was almost like, Oh, we need to wrap it up, hit someone with a tray, pin them, and it was just it was quite a sudden victory. But that kind of suits Ivory char- Ivory's character, I think, in that she would just try and get that pin and just get out of there. Um, I enjoyed the match, uh, thankfully, because there was no burning and no uh, irreparable damage that you couldn't heal. Um, it just the the parts of it where listening to Jerry Lawler describe any women's match at that time is always mildly painful, and it just makes me wonder what a missed opportunity it could be if these three had had the opportunity to be in their prime in the modern day because i think they may not be as good as uh, the modern day but i think there would be solid um additions to the roster and i wish we could have seen what they could have done so al snow he's been a bit down in the dumps as that his old al snow i know he's He's uh, feeling a bit down you know, since we, we we put him in the big-time Fox Hall of Fame here at Rogue Opinions. <laughs> it's a long story. 
still down since he and Mankind lost the tag title to the Acolyte, the Acolytes, the, uh, to the New Age Outlaws, and his action figure got removed from Walmart, and all the whole controversy of the, over the head doll. And this past week on Raw, he lost to Road Dog, so he's not used to the good good part of the Outlaws when it comes to wrestling. Uh, so Mankind decided to cheer him up by coming out on Raw and having the whole crowd sign for he's a jolly good and then let Al Snow know that he was going to take him to Las Vegas to cheer him up and that's what we get here basically it's uh, Mankind and Al Snow if, if they start in a remake of uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas this is what <laughs> I would do it's like with, with less drugs less drugs <laughs> oh I just um, I automatically love Mick Foley, regardless. He's always been one of my favourites, and he he's just one of those naturally cheesy individuals that just makes you smile despite yourself. So watching him and Al Snow go around Vegas is just absolutely perfect for me. I this was probably one of my favourite moments of the entire show. I'm not gonna lie, it was it was funny, it was cheesy, it was daft, and. It says so when even a random annoying fan can add to it and make it even better. You know, it just, yeah, I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. Smiling all the way through because it was all good natured, you know? Yeah. I've noticed with SmackDown there's a lot more pre-tapes than all footage from earlier today. And I think they're experimenting with stuff like that because it's a pre-taped show. Because I think on the SmackDown teams they'd also take stuff for heat and whatever. Whereas mm. Raw is mostly live. So like they're taking advantage of the tape nature of this and trying new things with SmackDown, which is good, and especially when you get moves like this, because, yeah, Mick Foley seems like the kind of guy, he'll, 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 he's up for anything, really, and they kept the continuity with like, the issues between him and Rock, because this guy keeps quoting the Rock, and then gets chased down by uh, by Foley and Snow, and just forces his, who's your favourite wrestler? Mankind! Dear damn right, that is him. Oh, that was um, absolutely perfect, I love that bit. I mean, we thought the Mean Street Posse were bad with the holes earlier on taking their money back. I mean, at least they actually gave them proper dollars. I mean, it shows Al Snow and uh, Mankind go to a strip club only after a group of fans say that they'll pay for it. And they're trying to tip the, the women with nickels. <laughs> yeah, it's just like um, Mick Foley, I think, has even admitted in his own autobiography that he can be a bit cheap. He will save as much money as possible. And both of these scenes just really adds to that way. So I would never go to a strip club, never go to a strip club. We're buying, oh, maybe we will. Our wives will never know and just go ahead for it. Um, just, I do like the idea of them trying to do some experimentation um, on. Smackdown, like they've got this opportunity to do pre recording, um, and they're going to try and utilize as much skits as possible to just get you more involved with some of the characters and some more random um, side journeys and that sort of thing. And it's a bit more, it's a bit of imagination, it's a bit more opportunity, um, which funnily enough, we'll, we'll realize in 2020 a lot more that being able to pre tape gives a lot more options and cinematic opportunities. But um, I think as a nice little side moment, Al Snow and Mick Foley in Vegas is just exactly what you need. It's like a palate cleanser after the hardcore match um, yeah. before leading into the rest of it. But um, I found the Al Snow controversy, I find particularly interesting because um, do you know what was one of the most popular films out the same year that Al Snow's controversy was going on? Hey, since we're talking about heads, I'll guess seven. 
It was Sleepy Hollow, which oh. had the headless horseman um, being sold as a toy with a with a with a head, and that they had no issues with. But because it was Al Snow um, with head, suddenly all this controversy seems to come up. But um, well, to be fair, I read that in Mick Foley's um, autobiography, so it could be true, it could not be. But I'm going with it being true that at the same time, CP Hollow was selling toys with a head in it and nobody batted an eyelid. You know, I don't know why it's a 70 and I'm pretty sure that came out in 95. I just thought heads, I thought, ah, what's in a box? And <laughs> I, I, I saw the connection. I appreciated the connection. Um, Take a shot. Uh, I kind of wish that it had been true because then you can just imagine that um, in Walmart they were selling little boxes just like if you open it up you get to see a head inside and Al Snow could have done a crossover. He would say, yeah, have my head because you've never seen what Gwyneth Paltrow looks like so it could work perfectly. (laughs) I mean, to be fair to Snow and Mankind, even with something like quarters, they still treat women better than Chris Jericho has in the last week because Chris Jericho lost to China at at Survivor Series and didn't get to capture the Intercontinental title. And he apparently made this big claim that he was so confident he would win that he he said he would have a sex change, which is all Joe Oliver would talk about during that Survivor Series match. It really got old. Mm. And then Jericho fought Gangrel on Raw and got distracted by China. This guy taking the piss out of him and giving him feminine items that he said he would need after his sex change. They gave him a tiny pair of scissors to help remove his, his dick with. I don't think anybody in the WF knows how a text change operation really works. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you might be right there. Yeah. And the biggest injustice is Gangrel beat Chris Jericho, not even with his own finisher. He beat him with like a Northern Light suplex, which was just odd. And then Jericho, wide-eyed, takes his revenge on China by tying her to a chair and smashing her thumb in with a hammer. And then they take China's glove off later on and the, her thumb is properly black. But it's been taken off. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did a gimmick where they tried to make it out like China had no thumb anymore. Because <laughs> you know, they're taking Remy to his eye out nowadays. So. <laughs> just have it that she walks around with like her thumb inside taped up and just four hands and she acts like she's lost her thumb for life. <laughs> and then just have it that... She, I, I wouldn't put it past... Um, Vince McMahon to have it that at one point there's like this fake thumb that China tries like shoving in Chris Jericho's face because why not if you can why not but yeah this was um, an interesting little um, storyline of mild emasculation and um, uh, transphobia you know it it ages not particularly well I don't think it even aged like a month Um, the whole like what I find weirdest is that Jericho, despite being the heel, is actually being cheered in certain points. You can actually hear the fans popping for him loudly, which I'm hoping is because they know he's really good and not because he's showing a woman where they should be, that sort of thing. Like, I don't know what type of fans it was on Monday, but there did seem to be, be quite a lot of cheering. Um, it's, it's a little bit frustrating for me, I have to admit, because I, I quite like intergender wrestling i have to admit i've i've become a big fan of it in the last couple of years um i even and this is going to be a mick foley type shameless plug that i'm gonna i'm gonna subtly intercede to you 
um, where I I had um, an article for on intergender in an actual book published earlier this year, uh, Women Love Wrestling, and I went through the history of some of the main people involved in it, and also some of the present ones, and I was quite proud of like how strong intergender is represented nowadays. And then I'm watching this and I realize how far it's come in just 20 years. Because even though China, you could, you could easily say physically uh, matches up to Jericho, um, there's definite gender interplay in this one, which can make certain parts uncomfortable, especially when you've got um, Jerry Lawler on the uh, announce table, because God forbid he should ever go past without making someone uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, even at Severity's the implied, basically Lawler implied that basically, oh yeah, it's only the women in the crowd that are cheering for China and it's all the men that are rooting for, for Jericho and I think Jericho is game too because the shine quickly comes off China once she's done with Jada in terms of her being the Intercontinental Champion and Jericho when he came in, I think is like whatever the 90s equivalent of the internet darling is because the internet is not really the thing that it is today and mm. Uh, yeah, like it's quite obvious that Jericho, like even in, in shows where he's beat up China and they'll their match, he'll come out later on and still get cheered no matter what he's done. Like so blatantly they see even that that they never even have to talk about it as someone with a sign up at the ramp saying, Hey China, how's your thumb? <laughs> yeah, it's like um, you can imagine that they were trying to find signs that were supporting China, and instead all you're getting is um, uh, pro Jericho support, which might be one of one of the first occasions I think when the fans were really going against the grain, saying that no, actually we love Jericho, and uh, you can see why in the uh, in the match you're about to discuss. Um, he comes across really well in every aspect, whether on the microphone, in the ring. You can see why the fans would be loving him. And then it's just like, why WWF? Why are you having it? You're making him the heel when everyone loves him. Why not take advantage? But, you know, ours is not to question or wonder. Ours is just to watch and review. So, Yeah, if the fans won't support China, who will? I'll tell mm. you. The sex addict who earlier this year China tricked into going on a date with a transvestite, but somehow he uh, he wants to stick up for today. He says to Jericho, "You broke her thumb, and now I'm going to kick your ass." And I'm that so blatantly felt like it somehow been edited down from however long it went on the actual taping, because yeah. Mark Henry got very little offense, and they managed to get caught with a bulldog and easily pinned after the line salt, which is again weird. To see Jericho win matches with a lion salt because, like, the walls of Jericho has been his trademark for years, and then even the code breaker, it's hard to think of him without using that move. But mm. the, the less, t- t- less about the Judas effect, the better. But, like, the, the lion salt seems like such a transitional move, and so it's hard for me to see him beating people with it. Yeah, the lion salt is always one of those that's entertaining to watch, but it's almost like the precursor to the third act of the match. It's the one where he's almost on top, he's got a good chance of winning, he's going to flash it out, and then it's going to be a close count. Um, It's very rarely ever going to get the free count. It's going to be... It's only if it's against someone who's much weaker, which 
turns out is Mark Henry. But I I noticed like you did about the editing because the first of all you've got it that Jericho is hitting Mark Henry with forearms in the corner, and then in the blink of an eye suddenly they're on the opposite side of the ring against the ropes and he's still forearming arming him and you just feel like how much was cut out of that and then straight afterwards you see mark henry irish ripped against the ropes and he almost stumbles bouncing off the ropes i noticed all of this in the space of about three seconds and i was just like oh god how bad was the original match mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's very rare to actually notice hard like editing cuts on this like tape show, because mm. the only the only other time I can really remember noticing it quite blatantly is uh, Jarrah his final SmackDown he cut a promo about the Good Housekeeping match. He's going through all his items, and at one point he's on the far side of the ring, and then out of nowhere he's suddenly at the side nearest, like the corner nearest the camera, and it's like, mm. how did you get from over there? Like, is no one else seen this? <laughs> like, it just felt <laughs> so weird. It's like um, how it's one of those moments where it feels like what how dumb do the editors think that the fans are that they're not going to notice that they've teleported from one side of the ring to the other you know nightcrawler was one of the most famous parts of (laughs) x-men 2 because he was able to do that shit and yet jericho and mark henry are able to do it nothing worth celebrating so i mean if it turns out we're gonna uh, turn into world wrestling mutant federation then i'm all up for that shit but like a really bad editing decision that suggests the match was pretty terrible. Yeah. We uh, we get that Dudley segment. I think we mentioned earlier on there on the phone with the cops and the Dudleys don't even know what's going on. They're that, they're seen as that, that dumb. Uh, Rock cuts a promo on the big boss man. The big boss man beat the Rock on Raw in the main event to become the number one contender for the WF title. That's a sentence I can't believe I'm reading out loud. But the Rock then says... I can't believe I'm hearing that. <laughs> The bo- Rock says that Bossman needed a Prince Albert's help. He couldn't beat him on his own. And the Rock values to get revenge later on because he may not be the WF champion, but he's the people's champion. And that's something he takes very seriously. And I'll, I'll talk about it now because the, the Rock match is going up later on, but I'll quickly talk about it now. They had one of a really weird ending to Raw. And we'll talk about weird endings when we come to the final segment of the show. But like, Bossman beats The Rock. The Rock then takes the boss man's nightstick and attacks boss man and Albert after the match. And it's not as if, like, oh, the referees are going to break up or someone's going to come down from the back. No, like, referees come in, like, agents come in, they they get rock-bottomed, and the rock just keeps beating up the boss man to the point where boss man's bloody. And the show just goes off air with the new number one contender getting his ass whipped by the rock. So, like, you want to put boss man over as a challenger for the title, you beat him, put him over the rock, and immediately have the rock kick the fuck out of him. And you wonder why Big Show and the Boss Man at Armageddon doesn't feel important. That just feels like such backwards booking in my mind. It's like, right, if you're going to have it that the Big Boss Man goes over the rock, which is such an amazing sentence to hear ever, it blows my absolute freaking mind, um, you either go all in or you don't do it. Or you have it that at least the boss man can escape and look like um, a snivelling heel by having got the victory. But what you basically was you was you're saying, right, we're not going to put the rock in the main event. So we're going to shuffle him to the side by having him lose. But we can't make him look weak. So we're going to have him beat up the two men who just beat him. Um, 
but that's it doesn't matter because our world title doesn't really matter because it's like thirds in importance at this rate and it's it's bad enough that the boss man if you describe him as a number one contender sounds weak watching all of this happens it, it just he just feels like generic bad guy number one um being prepared as the as the first victim and that's all it is he just looks so weak in comparison that you're surprised it even gets to armageddon you could technically have it oh it's just a match next week and it'll be like yeah that sounds about right because that's as much care as you put into it having your number one contender left bloodied and battered by the guy he just beat just sounds so bad if it had been the big show do it i'd kind of get it but even then, that wouldn't work because it should be the boss man on top as the heel, not the baby face. It just seems so haphazard and backwards booking. And you wonder whether it was a case that maybe the big show was supposed to come down on Monday Night War, but he just missed his cue. So the rock's like, right, I've got to, got to make up for it because it's live war. So I'll keep on rock bottoming agents. And then he'll be like, right, I'll hit boss man. And then he realizes... Hang on, I just had to put over the big fucking boss man. I'm actually going to go to town on this guy, and then just ends up battering him. And it just sounds like a sounds like a clusterfuck, is what it does. It sounds like a clusterfuck. It honestly is, and so much has happened on the show. I, I didn't realize until I look back here. We've already had three championship matches. We've had the European title, the WWF title, and the women's title. And mm-hmm. none of them really felt like a big deal, especially not the women's one, because none of them got entrances. And now, mm-hmm. out of nowhere, we've got a fourth one, because the Hardys are challenging the New Age Outlaws for the tag team titles. Two teams I, I don't really associate with each other, because like they both seem like different sides of the Attitude Era. Like the mm-hmm. Outlaws are the first half, the Hardys are over in the second half, and I don't really think of them interacting, but... Honestly, like it wasn't difficult, but this was the best out of all the title matches we had on this show. <laughs> Which says the standard of the title matches, unfortunately, because um, this was a solid match, but it was it was nothing you were going to write home about and say you need to rush to watch this one. But it shows how inadequately the previous three matches were really portrayed um, and set up, like. European Championship, complete another afterthought. WF title, pretty close to an afterthought. Women's match, better than expected, but treated like an afterthought. Um, and then you've got this one, which happens to have the Outlaws, who do get a good crowd reaction, um, with Jerry the King Lawler somehow calling them the best tag team ever, which I think made my eyes roll about 17 times in the space of two <laughs> seconds. Um I think the most amazing thing is hearing the Hardy Boys come in with barely a muster of a reaction, but then being quite well protected almost during the match in terms of the finish. Do you, what do you think? Do you feel they were quite well protected the way it was uh, set up? I think so. I mean, they're, they're quite well positioned, you know, having Terry and they went through like the ladder match, which they still they won't shut up about since it happened. And I think they're trying to make put DX over as this group that like the, they're always had the numbers. So like cause you had X Hot getting involved because during like Matt's hot dive, like the parties were so are so innovative that one of the spots accidentally took out the ref. And mm. so I think it maybe it looked unfair because like the Hardys are over 
with the fans after that live match so they want to keep them faces and the best way to hopefully keep them faces is to have them like get screwed and hopefully fans will sympathise with them more and but I've said before the Outlaws can only really wrestle one type of match and the Hardys are doing stuff that people haven't seen before and they really showed up I think the Outlaws in this match because they had a variation of with the heart attack but Jeff was running on the ape across the barricade and diving off the building so cool. while Matt held him mm. That was such a cool moment, and uh, um, it's a a lovely little callback to the history. You've got it that the Outlaws technically represent the present um, style of tag team wrestling in that they've got the promos and they've got the charisma and they're very over, but they're very one-dimensional in the ring. And then you've got the Hardy Boys, who you really feel can represent the future in that their, their imaginative style, they're quite light in their feet, they've they give you they give you moves that you feel you should pop for, and the the you can def. I know I said it again and again and again, but it's true. This is a transitional period of where you're seeing the old guard meeting the new guards, and the new guard just looks so much better in comparison, crisper, more imaginative, innovative, and the old guard look stale and safe in comparison which does tie into the ending of protecting the hardy boys and that i mean i made the notes you had it you had a ref bump you had x-pack make the save twice and you had billy gun pull the referee out so there's like four different moments that the hardy boys could have won it but didn't and that it does make the new age outlaws look clever and desperate in terms of how they escaped with the title but it also makes you feel that it's just going to be inevitable that the Hardy Boys will replace them mm. Yeah because the Hardys actually already have been tagged champs people forget their first reign because it happened on a random brawl when Michael Heath was still their manager but they lost a few weeks later on pay-per-view to the Acolytes and I think they got heat the first night they won the belts because uh, one of them accidentally took Kane's seat in first class uh, because they weren't meant to be in first class. And Michael Hayes said, oh, you should be sitting here. You're the champs now. And Kane noticed Jeff in his seat. And he, like, instead of saying anything, like, oh, that's fine. I'll find somewhere else. And he's basically everybody else in the locker room. Like, why the fuck are you moving seat when this new guy took your seat and the Hardys got uh, they got taken to wrestlers court, allegedly? It, it says... It- the most impressive thing to come out of that is how lovely Kane actually must be behind um, uh, backstage because he could have easily probably slapped both of them and told them to get out of his freaking chair. And instead, he's so laid back and chilled. Uh, he's just like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I'll go elsewhere. Whereas the other, the real, the veterans of the, uh, of the backstage locker room would just be looking at it absolutely aghast with the disrespect being shown and it's especially painful considering that if anyone should know about what the backstage locker room was like it should be Michael Hayes and he really <laughs> really didn't protect the Hardy Boys in that situation he was more of a detriment and I think it, it might be one of the reasons why they swiftly moved the Hardy Boys on to having Terry instead because they were less likely to cause trouble that way, whereas Michael Hayes doesn't seem to have it in him not to be a bit of an ass. Mm. Yeah, because like, the main perpetrators when you hear about stories of WrestleCore are JBL and The Undertaker, and I'm pretty sure Kane is just slightly taller than both of those guys, 
So mm. if Kane wanted to do something about the Hardys, he could have easily done it. But yeah, just go to show what a nice guy he is. <laughs> and what's funny about Xbox, I know so when he came out, is that Triple H, we've already said, is the ultimate villain at this time. The outlaws, mm. no, the outlaws, no matter how much they try, still get cheered when they come out. The, their main stick is still over. And then Xbox is just hated. Everyone's just like, boo. Like, we're, we're well on the way to Xbox heat here because mm. people are like, oh, Xbox, just go away. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's like, um, uh, so you, the outlaws, obviously their shtick is over. Uh, and it means that they're quite contradictory to the rest of D-Generation X who are hated. But there's a difference between hating Triple H because he's a nasty individual who's screwing everyone over and then unfortunately X-Pac who is just the stale part in that he hasn't really changed if you look at the other three members they've changed during the period they've been with D-Generation X, Triple H especially whereas X-Pac has always really stayed the same he's only had a brief outlay where he was um teaming with Kane and seemed to be showing a difference in character and then he just reverted back to norm so by the fact that X-Pac never really grows it means that despite probably being the best worker of the four at the point he was the most hated because he was always the same he was stale he was boring the new age outlaws the fans really only appreciated their shtick but when they were actually in the ring you know was they were supporting the Hardy Boys and they were annoyed when the Outlaws won, although that could have been because X-Pac was with them. And then Triple H has gone from being a heel uh, at the very beginning to now pos- uh, going on to become the biggest heel in the company. It's a very contradictory group, really. They have a mishmash of styles and plans and uh, responses from the crowd. And it will eventually the staleness of it is going to become a major issue, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like the bit in the film The World's End, like, Xbox is Simon Pegg, he's still the same as he was when he was at school, <laughs> while all his mates have grown up. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I never imagine X-Pac uh, battling robots looking like a hero but now i can see it you know they they could do an international um sequel they can have it that uh the original was set in england the next one set in china and third one set in mexico or something like that i just do a globe trotting adventures and have different people come in i would love to see x pack as simon peg because i can only imagine how amazing that would be to watch drunk so <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was routine. Uh, we get the exact same vignette for Arnie that we got on Raw, which is basically I don't know how great it was to go to Smashing. And yeah, guess this little slide in a plug for his movie where he goes, Oh, yeah, and then we got to show the crowd uh, the end of days trailer, which wasn't in the network version we watched a few weeks ago. So I'm assuming that was a, a thing for the live crowd only, and maybe we just got cut out uh, of the mm. network version. And then uh, we have the guys, everybody in Vince's office, and then suddenly. Uh, Smoke fills the room because somehow the exorcism try to set the the room on fire or whatever. Because you don't see what caused it, you just see one of them going, "You smell smoke." Cut that from Brady. They come out of the room. There's smoke everywhere, like fucking something out of stars in their eyes, and <laughs> and nobody can find Stephanie. Oh, uh, I just imagine Vince McMahon today is going to be Eric Clapton or something like that. Um, it's it. 
it was weird that you you so you have it you can tell from the position of the office the way it was set up you have it you go through the first door um which is where the security guards are and then when you're actually inside you can see in the right hand corner is another door which i'm guessing has no security nobody pays attention to and what you've actually got is that when um vince shane and stephanie are checking on test uh triple h does his own version of the Grinch and sneaks in really quietly and puts firecrackers in or something like that and nobody notices. They don't explain how it's done. They don't explain when it was done. All we know is that there's this um, hidden door in the in the right-hand corner that nobody notices and somehow the place gets burning up. It's it, <laughs> I, I would be very curious to have seen the deleted scenes of how DX snuck in and got that place on fire. Uh, again, we should reiterate, burning somebody over is not in DX's wheelhouse, but arson, totally okay. Arson is yeah. totally okay in DX's book. You just imagine eventually the uh, F- uh, the FBI and the US uh, government are going to bring up a RICO case against them and go through all of the things they've done. It's like, well, you've betrayed people, you've um, you've kidnapped people, you've had it, you tried to set things on fire, you've attacked family members. You just have it at the end of it. Trevor H goes, yeah, but I never ran anybody over. So like, not really helping your case there, buddy. You're not really making yourself look good. It's like, oh, I've done all these things, but I didn't do that. <laughs> uh, so our, technically the main event is it's the final match, but there is a, another segment to come after it. We have The Rock versus The Big Boss Man Part 2. Uh, it's basically a similar setup to last, the match on Raw, even though the match on Raw was a hardcore match. It's hard to really tell the difference sometimes in the attitude because the ref just let a lot of stuff go. You get The Rock gratefully dominating the boss man because it's weird, something we should have mentioned with the boss man is The Rock's taking a lot of trips to the mid-card in 99 like he fought Billy Gunn, Val Venus, the Bulldog. But the thing about those guys in in comparison to the, the boss man is they had the sense to have none of those guys beat The Rock. And so The Rock, it seems like he's just set up to get his heat back despite despite Bossman being the number one contender. Uh, Albert tries to get involved. Uh, the next stick gets, gets brought in. Rock ducks it easily, hits a rock bottom and wins. The first thing you notice when the rock comes out is the huge reaction. These, mm. um, and the gulf in standard as well. Like This, this is the... It's been... An, an, an okay episode so far of showing lots of individuals and you've had some good reactions for like the outlaws jericho and kane but when the rock comes out it's a completely different level you can tell this is an absolute superstar who the fans love he he just radiates charisma um and then you're thinking to yourself this is the guy that you had lose to the big boss man and you can understand completely why they would have it that he has to get his heat back because the idea of him losing to the boss man at all is absolutely ridiculous you mentioned about how he battled val venus and uh billy gunn um didn't lose to them it almost would have made more sense for him to lose to 
Billy Gunn or Val Venus in that they were young enough talents they could have possibly gone on to become upper mid-card level whereas Big Boss Man was at that point where he was on a downward slope he wasn't really a main event option he wasn't really going to be a future champion option so you decided to put him over The Rock and the fact that The Rock sold uh, just enough to make the Big Boss Man look okay but then it was just like hey on I'm The Rock and he just beats crap out of bit uh big boss man and also completely um you uh, uh has no issues with prince albert all and all it ends up doing is really really intensifying the idea that the big boss man is an inadequate number one contender and what it basically is is a mid-card feud with the wwf title attached in terms of big show against big boss man it's it's not good booking, um, really, but you do at least get to see The Rock looking as awesome as he normally does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Big Joe finally does come down, like you said, he might have been, he was mighty supposed to do on Raw, but he does come down here to help fend off Bossman and Albert. Then the Hollies get involved, but The Rock can somehow easily take care of the Hollies. It's weird with uh, Big Show and Bossman, like they have a thing next week we'll talk about that. But they're just interfering in matches or doing run-ins. Like, what happened to the sudden intensity of this feud that involved stealing coffins? Not only not a week ago, like, are we suddenly forgetting that for a couple of weeks? And while it's convenient, like, yeah, but we need big show to fight the bulldog this week for the title. It's, let's just put the dust to the side for now. <laughs> so, oh, we've got a plan for a pay-per-view, but. We need to have these one-off matches in order to make Big Show look strong. So let's just not have the Big Boss Man appear. So you've got a hero challenger you can't really put over and haven't put over. You've got a babyface champion who you're trying to put over, but you're not having in his feud for the upcoming pay-per-view. And you've got an upcoming pay-per-view match that feels so underwhelming that you're actually having to put over other matches to entice people to want to buy the pay-per-view i mean by the end of the show you'll be able to tell exactly what is going to be important at armageddon and what isn't mm-hmm. and so we come to the end of the show where after from my count nine segments that either feature triple h president man or both we have to close the show by triple h coming out to confront Vince McMahon by Triple H comes out and basically does the same thing he did on Raw. He said, it's a very series, uh, a crime is committed, uh, I lost my title. Uh. By the way, I know a lot of people make that, that joke about Triple H with the, uh, at the end. It wasn't until a few weeks into the retro review that he, I actually started noticing it. Like, my God, people weren't lying. He does actually talk like that. <laughs> and he, he challenges Vince to a match at Armageddon and he says he doesn't want there to be any shit. He doesn't want to get like suspended or anything like that. Like he wants a proper match where they can do what they want, and that's they can actually settle this. And apparently, it will get personal. And and unfortunately, Vince doesn't get a chance to answer. But if he did answer, what I think he should have said was, "No, Triple H, I am I am a fifty year year old man. I should not. I am not a full time wrestler. I should not be wrestling you at at Armageddon. Who you should be fighting." is my young up-and-coming future son-in-law who's not been on the last two pay-per-views even though he should be 
who has more of an issue with you, given that you tried to kidnap him earlier on. So that's a very uh, Armageddon. It'll be you versus Test. That's what you should have done. Absolutely. Do you know, I could not agree more. It's you, You've got this 50-year-old businessman being put into a major feud when you've got this, this young um, wrestler who's supposed to be your next star. And it would have been a great opportunity. It would make sense because, yes, it's personal. Don't know whether you realise that. Um, I did because Triple H belaboured the point to the um, ad nauseum. Um, but Vince McMahon doesn't need that match, whereas Test could have that match, and it would be a great benefit. Triple H, he could utilise that match and finally take, um, finally really, really imprint how terrible he's been by battering Vince's future son-in-law and create a long-term arc for this. And instead, they've got it all. Oh, we're going to put the 50-year-old man in a match against Triple H, but make sure that nobody gets in trouble for doing it. I mean, even even Vince, to some degrees, looked like he was thinking, what bollocks is this? When he was talking to Triple H during the promo, which unfortunately that might have been one of the most boring promos I've listened to in a long time because it was basically a bingo edition of Triple H tropes. Uh, and it, in he could have said in three minutes what it took him, what, nine, ten minutes to do? I felt It felt like nine, ten minutes. Uh, I don't know if you timed it, but it, it, I, get the, I get the angle they're going for. I don't think it's the right angle. Mm-hmm. This is a very much the beginning of McMahon getting into like too much of the storylines. A thing that people have complained about for for years, and I know it seems inconceivable. I think they think of Test as a main event, but like, why wasn't Test put into the Triple Threat match? I mean, he was in the the building; it was made clear he was not on the card yet. He was there with the McMahon. I know he probably wouldn't have got as, as a good a reaction as Big Show got. Yeah. But like if he won the title and then he said, Yeah, we'll have Test versus Triple H uh Armageddon for the title again, a lot of the segments here and a lot of the storylines probably wouldn't change because Triple H'd still be going after the McMahon's to probably get to Test and they would still be making things personal. So like when you really think about it, slight changes could have and then probably Test would have just lost the belt a month later to Triple H. But at least mm. you gave Test that opportunity. And he could have maybe even taken it better than the big show got it with that opportunity. And then the show ends. Sorry, the show ends with uh, this the big screen suddenly going up almost on cue to show that Tess, Shane, and Stephanie are all falling down the stairs. And uh, Vince runs after them to go check on them. As uh, what he should have put in post is dun 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 East Ender scheme in the background. <laughs> It was, I, do you know what? I was thinking you you needed a musical piece over it. I wasn't sure which one, but I think you've got the perfect one. I If you could re-edit it, that scene and just put EastEnders over it, I would share that like mad. I'll be completely up for that. Um, I think your idea of test makes so much more sense because, one, choosing test to replace Steve Austin would be completely understandable because he's he'll be being groomed for a bigger position as Vince's future son-in-law. Um, there was enough interest in Test 
and potential that the audience could be on the side thinking like hang on do we like him or not and it could have had long-term benefits in that even if Tess was literally a transitional champion to have it that at Armageddon he was to lose it to Triple H for Triple H to start taking control at least you've given Tess this opportunity and you've almost broken the duck for him so if he came back again to try and challenge for it he can be like I was a previous champion and you know what last time I tried doing it the right way now I'm going to do it the Triple H way. And he could turn into a villain and start having it that he's the figurehead of the of Vince McMahon. You could have it that he's protected as much as possible. The It just feels like there would be more possible opportunities from that decision than bringing in the big show who wasn't suited for the position and then trying to force a match between Vince McMahon and Triple H. Because you could have still had Boss Man and Big Show facing one another at Armageddon, and it would be in its right place as a mid-card feud. You wouldn't have The Rock having to put over the Big Boss Man. You could have it instead that it was Rock versus Triple H, number one contendership, which explains why um, Triple H is able to get the opportunity to face Test at Armageddon, and Test is having it he's saying i don't really want to be facing triple h he doesn't deserve it and triple h is using these personal connections to attack it brings the kidnapping in even more prominent uh predominantly because now Vince is like my world champion has been kidnapped now i'm bringing the police in you got all these different elements you could have incorporated and it just feels like such a missed opportunity i think yeah just test uh, in the years since, because he would stick around to like early '07, and every now and then he'd get this weird mid card push, where he'd get maybe a quick tag run with a random partner, he'd get like an IC title run, and I think had they not like watched this early run of his when he was well, he was prime for a big spot here, his later mini pushes would have looked so much more believable, because like even up to when he left, because just before he left, he had a few months of being primed as a top contender. A top challenger for the WWE version of the ECW title, where mm. like he fought Bobby Lashley at the Royal Rumble '07, and then was gone like a couple weeks later. It it would make a special sense considering that at SummerSlam, Test was in this huge love it or leave it battle against Shane McMahon, and winning that could have could have been the perfect start because you could have had Vince turn around and say, "Right, you've proven." You, you deserve to be a McMahon. You deserve to be part of the family. Let's start putting you in the main event scene. And you could have had the next couple of pay-per-views, him battling and being put in these bigger matches and looking good. Why is it at the same time getting close to Stephanie? And in Survivor Series, it would have made sense to someone said, do you know what? We're going to give the opportunity to someone who's earned it. We're going to give it to Test. And then he comes in and... The Rock and Triple H are so focused on each other that Test actually wins, and it would be just as shocking as the Big Show, but but technically make more sense from a storyline point of view. And then you got to set up for the next month, and I would be curious to see where Test's trajectory would have gone if they'd taken that decision. The decision not to have him included in that moment and going with Vince versus. Um, Triple H instead not only had a major effect on Triple H going on to become a main event star 
but it also was the beginning of the downslope for Test. And it doesn't matter whether he was the um, so uh, survivor for the Alliance and getting a one-year contract. It doesn't matter if he was put with Stacey Keebler. It didn't matter whether he was voided up and battling for the ECW title. He would ne- He would never really look as strong as he could have at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would, it's weird to think of what this alternate timeline where Test got a WF title run would look like. But you know, we can we can only speculate here on this podcast. But we've taken a long road through SmackDown, but uh, we've come to the end. Uh, Sam, I'll ask you for two things: one, your rating is it a thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, or thumbs down for this episode? And is there any one thing on this episode? That if you had to say somebody, if we're going to watch one, go back and watch one thing from this episode, what would it be? Um, I think what I'm going to do is that it may be a little bit sitting on the fence, but I'm going to go for a thumbs middle and I'm going to explain why. Um, because the pacing of this uh, episode is really good it goes through very quickly there's very little downtime there's a good storyline that is be- uh, begins in the very first moment and still comes to fruition at the very end there's a good through line as a as a story this is a really good show so if you like the sports entertainment side then it'll be completely worth it Rock is over huge. If you want to see Rock doing his normal good promo, if you want to see Jericho looking strong, Kane, etc. It's worthwhile. If you want to see the beginning of Triple H's promotion into the main event, it's worthwhile. The negatives, and there are several, not a single match is then about four and a half minutes, maybe. Every match is less than five minutes. The only match that matters is the main event and even that ends up just ruining what's ha- what's happened previously you've got jerry the king lawler being as unbearable as ever so it's gonna it may sound a little bit surprising but i think if you wanted to watch one thing from this i would actually say mick foley and al snow in vegas because it just puts a smile on your face you can watch it at any point you can watch it in context you can watch it out of context and it's you're just seeing two friends having a good time and it puts and the good thing is it only lasts like less than five minutes so you wouldn't waste too much time and it would just put a smile on your face that would be the one bit i'd recommend (laughs) hey i'm kind of middling as well but i'm very close to it the only thing that's keeping it down to the middle for me is all of these events Triple H saying that they, they overdid this, even though they, they had to have a, a throughline for the episode, they sometimes overdo it with mm. all these like short things that most of them don't even add that much to the story of the episode in general. If you want to go back and watch something like entertainment-wise, then yeah, I definitely agree about the Arsenal uh, Mankind thing. If you actually wanted a match to go back and watch, I'd, I, the only one I could recommend was probably the tag table match. Mm. as it's probably one of the only matches with a decent length for you to sit down and actually watch. And especially if you're fans of like either tag wrestling or the Hardys, you get to see them in a very early stage of their career before 2000, where alongside some of the other teams that we've seen in this episode, they'll really start to take off and like change what tag wrestling is all about in the company. Mm. I would agree 100% with that. Um no, no disagreements from me. Uh, if it had to be a match I had to recommend, I'd go for that one. 
So, Sam, I thank you for joining me for this longer than usual episode of uh, the Retro Smackdown review. For those who aren't aware of the, uh, what, are, what are your plugs? Uh, what are you up to? Uh, so I've moved on from wrestling blogs just like yourself. I'm now writing quite regularly for a website called Cultured Vultures. Um, I look at film, television and obviously wrestling. I've had several articles recently discussing AEW, NWA and Impact. So if you want to see what I'm up to now, I would say make your way to Cultured Vultures. It's got a lot of fantastic different options on there and different writers who are talking about a lot of latest stuff and a lot of interesting ideas. And I have to admit, I, sometimes I don't even have to worry about my own articles. I just end up reading several of theirs because it's fascinating. And I always go, damn, I wish I'd thought of that. So, uh, <laughs> Coached Vultures, or if you want to buy Women Love Wrestling, the anthology book, um, it's just to see some even more amazing writers than myself because i'm i'm solid but some of them are absolutely transcending uh what they're discussing all proceeds for that one go to charity for uh women's centers and rain and that sort of thing and i think considering we've had to sit through um jericho attacking china with a hammer the least we can do is uh, bleach our soul a little bit and um do something positive so those would be the two locations you would find me very good and you can follow us here at rogue underscore thing on twitter and instagram you can get me it's got my 1996 you can follow my other podcast got on paul's rambling podcast at sp rambling we're uh, doing a lot of tna or impact stuff at the moment a uh, rogue, rogue opinion to go back to the archives of all our other uh, episodes of this retro review and you can find stuff to do with football Reese's new series from 501 it's completely original and me Nathan and Jimmy doing all sorts of weird stuff to do with wrestling whenever our schedules can get together so check all those out and remember everybody we've had fun but don't make things personal <laughs> personal don't make uh, make it a personal oh that's going to be in my head for the rest of the day damn you <laughs> Thank you for having me.